The Football Pod on OTB Sports. Have you ever seen a team like Limerick that are so physically dominant? They're yeah, absolutely oh. financially <laughs> dominant. <laughs> the Football Pod is available every Tuesday exclusively on the OTB Sports app. OTB AM. With Gillette, get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. All right, half past seven. It is Wednesday morning. You're very welcome along to OTB AM. Jaron Owen in studio and Nathan on the line. Uh, we're talking football because there's lots of stories to get to. We're also going to end up talking boxing because it turns out Bernard Dunn has officially left the Irish Amateur Boxing Association in the aftermath of a uh, pre-Olympics uh, dossier that was anonymously leaked, which was critical of his role. He um, obviously went and was part of the backroom team that did really, really well at the Olympic Games and looks like somebody who is going to be a massive loss to Irish boxing. So it appears as if uh, Irish boxing has once again shot itself in the foot. That's a Vincent Hogan exclusive on the back of the Independent this morning. Talk about that a little bit later on as well. In the meantime, though, uh, Chelsea... The sale is looking a little bit fractured. Uh, one of the Kalku players has said he doesn't want to play for Down and that most of his teammates don't want to play for Down, that the whole situation is a shambles. We'll talk about that a little bit later on as well. And whatever you're having, hashtag is OTBAM. You can text us this morning, 0879-180-180. Nathan, good morning to you. Morning, lads. When it was uh, 2-0 to Villarreal last night at halftime, was it like, nah, this is fine, this is no big deal, this is totally to be expected. We've seen this before from this Liverpool team. Or are you like, oh my God, what the hell's happening here? A little bit of both, because we haven't seen this from this Liverpool team over, well, certainly over this season. They've had a level of consistency where uh, the craziness that maybe marked the first few years of the Klopp reign, where it was a bit go-go-go, as John Giles always said, and uh, a bit helter-skelter, they've far more control this season. So to put in their worst 45 minutes of the season away from home at Villarreal, uh, you were going in at halftime thinking, oh, another one of these brilliant European nights, but this time it's Liverpool are on the wrong end of it. But I did feel at halftime when Villarreal hadn't got the third goal, that at 2-0, Liverpool had the bench. And I think that was the most reassuring aspect for Liverpool supporters was Jordan Henderson, Luis Diaz. Everybody's expecting both of them to come on. In the end, it was just Diaz who came on at halftime. But they've shown consistently over the past few months that when they make changes, they make an impact. And... The second Diaz came on, it was a, a totally different game. His willingness to get on the ball, his his want to just run at Villarreal again and again and again, and the threat that he posed it just seemed to up everything for Liverpool. But you know, because it was 2-2 on aggregate, if they were 2-0 down and it was 2-0 on aggregate, I think you would have uh, fancied Villarreal with all their European experience and their know-how to hold out. But Liverpool have just so much depth and so much talent and an ability to win any type of game at the moment when you look back at what they've done over the last couple of weeks depending on the opponent yeah, I, I think I think a lot of people expected Liverpool to, to see that out in the second half We did say on the show yesterday Owen that uh, crazy things happen in the Champions League semi-final and crazy things did happen in that first half Like it's it's interesting like it's what, what was the, the problem for Liverpool in that first half like Andy Robertson was kind of comparing the Madrigal to, to Anfield afterwards last night and I think that probably does come into it a little bit like you look at the passing accuracy stats it went from 66% up to 84% if you compare the first half to the second half that sloppiness in the first half is just kind of so unbecoming of Liverpool and probably the, the environment is 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 one of the explaining reasons for it but of course when you have someone like Lewis Diaz to bring in it's going to make your team a lot better Jurgen Klopp went all 
Jay-Z after the game was like we had 11 problems in the first half. He didn't want to pin it down on uh, Diogo Jota per se. And he also said that he went to one of his coaches and said, find me one good clip from that first half so we can show it to the lads at halftime to give them some confidence. And he said, we have no clips. And that was uh, one of the interesting <laughs> bits from, from last night. Like I didn't really realise that Klopp uses video analysis at halftime in the, the dressing room or that, that coaches do it full stop. So... Um, that's, oh, that's I assume they, they, it's quick fire one or two things here's yeah, an fair. obvious error that we have made go fix it or here's something that we're doing that's working time and time again just do it again there's no point having about three analysts in the stadium and about four more sitting at home doing all this work if you're not going to use it yeah I suppose it's, it's, I guess it's a fair point ah, they're using it in like junior C football matches now yeah but I would have thought it was in come the on I think Liverpool I, I would, like a multi-billion dollar enterprise no, at halftime or like here's a little video clip but I, I thought it was just all in the aftermath of the game, really. Kerry footballers are doing it. Yeah, I just thought it was all in the aftermath of the game. I just, <laughs> like, at halftime, it's like, what are you going to achieve? What, what are you going to achieve at halftime in the game when you've got, like, 15 minutes and people are wrecked? I mean, Mayo 2006 were the last team not to do it. No. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> if only we'd had someone going, big guy up front. Turns out they've started the big guy at full forward. Maybe oh, we Jesus, the ghosts. The ghosts. The ghosts. Uh, I, I think it was, look, it was obviously the intensity that Villarreal brought. Like, Liverpool should have been expecting it. There's no way Villarreal were just going to roll over at home in a European semi final. But maybe because they were, I don't want to say so poor last week, but offered so little going forward that Liverpool thought it would be a similar type of game. Uh, but, geez, Villarreal were at them. And it was a game that didn't suit Thiago, the speed. Well, running by him let's again, just talk about again. that. Let's just talk about that. Let's just talk about that. Because Thiago is the best footballer in the world, according to the uh, my Liverpool feed, the feed of Liverpool fans um, over the last three months. Like, uh, untouchable. The, you know, perhaps the best midfielder, I don't know. I can't actually remember anybody as good. Pirlo in the World Cup in 06 is, is the only comparison. You see, now what you're trying to do here is to build to it up so much that when it doesn't happen... The so, just... No, no, that's that's what Liverpool fans have been telling me. Like, best footballer in the world, territory, last couple of months. You know, Salah, excellent. But really, the, the change that is going to sweep the quadruple for them has been so you don't think, you the don't ascension think of Thiago to the, the high planes of like a, a, an echelon that he looks down on the rest of humanity. He is um, he is Jesus being tempted by Satan at the top of Mount Tibidabo. Look, look down here. You can have all this, Jesus. All you've got to do is take this forbidden fruit. Tiago took the forbidden fruit and he owns everything. Um, so what happened last night? How, how is it that like uh, a team of Premier League misfits could send him so off his game that he's passing the ball to the touchline like, like it's in the Phoenix Park? Well, how is it that a team of Premier League misfits managed to get themselves all the way to a Champions League semi-final? Well, that's a different question. Good that's my question. Good management. Yeah, uh, It's an area he struggles with. I thought in the game against Manchester City where, in one way, he was the player who dragged Liverpool back into it. You saw both sides of him. First Manchester City opportunity for Raheem Sterling, Kevin De Bruyne just strolls past him. That when he's on the back foot, when players are running at him, like that's not the strong part of his game. The strong part of his game when he gets on the ball. So uh, I think... He didn't have a split second. They just ran and ran at him. Defensively, he wasn't able to keep up with it. And he looked a bit rattled. Like Some of those passes he played in the first half were so out of character. Like basic, basic uh, stuff for a player of Thiago's calibre. And maybe there's something that other teams will have seen there with Liverpool last night that they can get at. Like the entire midfield unit, Keita had a complete nightmare in the first half. I'm always, always surprised when I see a Liverpool 11 for a game of this magnitude and Henderson isn't starting. He is he is the man on nights like that. He is the one who sets the tone, who gets a grip of things, 
who make sure that there's no sloppiness. So for Keita, who does seem to be first choice for the European games and like the decisions that Klopp now has for a Champions League final in terms of centre-back, centre-midfield, and which of the three start up front are huge. But that was as poor as Liverpool have played all season in that first 45. And you know, Thiago, Keita, Andy Robertson, you know, who again, the last few weeks, everyone's been raving about his form. Like that first goal you know, needs to be more aware, needs to get out in front. Trent didn't cover himself in glory for the, for the second goal either. So it was a bad, bad 45 minutes. But the, like, the thing that Klopp will look at, I think, is been able to turn around to that bench and know he has a lo- several players now who can come on and who can change the course of a game. Of the players who started for Liverpool last night, do you want to guess who had the best passing accuracy? Van Dijk. Thiago. 84.3% according to who scored. So this is a, this was just like a first half problem that got remedied in the second half. And also when you look at the guy passing out of play, that just is like, oh, he's completely off his game. When actually there are just a more extraordinary moments. And also in the first half, it kind of felt like they could have used Thiago more. They could have gone through Thiago a lot more when they were just playing these balls over the top. And it was like these balls, uh, I'm not sure, was it, were they just constantly overhitting them? Was the Villarreal line too high and they're not used to coming up against a, a high line I'm not sure what it was but I thought they could have gone through midfield more in the first half and the stats at the end showed that Thiago actually really when it comes to passing accuracy hey. which is the thing that you're criticising him yeah, for but well, that's, that yeah, but that, that, like Thiago's always going to be pretty close to the top because he's, you know, he's the vast majority of his yeah. passes are the simple little five yard passes it's sideways the, but no the, like Allison and the centre back should be top of the passing accuracy like they're the most sideways passes uh, I, I, do you know this from other previous matches? No, but that, I think season? it's the, listen, I, I don't want to say it's the Joe Allen uh, effect, but, you know, it's the he's teams the, possession. He's the Spanish Joe Allen, say. is that what you're saying about Thiago? No, I think... Uh, some is that what I just heard? That's he's the Spanish Joe Allen. That's not, yeah. that's not your headline. That's the headline. That's your headline. At, at Nathan Murph, he's the Spanish Joe Allen. <laughs> jo, jo, at, you know, at jo, Rogers, Joe Allen looked like, like he was the Welsh Thiago at one stage of his career, but... <laughs> Never quite went that way, unfortunately, for Joe. Um, okay, uh, I think we're, we're, we could get sidetracked down uh, a Thiago-sized hole. Uh, he was um, there was somebody. Anyway, <laughs> it's too early in the morning. Listen, you can also, and, uh, you, you need to you need to be uh, obviously looking at teams and picking holes and all that. But you know, they are back in another Champions League final, a third Champions League final in five years. Uh, which I mean, is look, it's pretty I'd, insane. I'd love to have seen last night's performance against Bayern to see what would have happened. We were talking about the team are seventh in, but the maybe it never moment. happens against Bayern. Maybe it never happens because there's no complacency. The there's no complacency. The so there was a bit there. of complacency at two 0 and I think that's probably understandable. Like there's big games, big game, big games. Like ah, this one's going to be easy enough for us. Um, and I, I, just the way the team was changed and everybody was like, he was able to rest players the weekend. I, it's like it's a really difficult balancing act. And they managed to come through it. I think that's really all that matters. John Wayne on Acid is the uh, YouTube user. I hope you're only microdosing as opposed to uh, dropping full tabs, John. He's wondering, was the slippy pitch the reason for Thiago being terrible? I would have thought the slippy pitch would have elevated Thiago's skill set even higher Mm. and made him stand out. Maybe, I I never understand. Maybe the heaviness heaviness meant that, you know, his radar is slightly off, that the ball isn't travelling the way he quite expects. Yeah, I always thought that like bad conditions would elevate the best players' skill sets, but there's the other argument that it's the great equaliser in terms of bringing mediocre players up to um, good players. Virgil van Dijk is the best centre-back of all time, says Michael Owen. I've never seen anyone else like him. This was on BT Sport last night. It wasn't his best performance last night, though, was it? Like, no, it's Virgil a, was not good. No, it's an interesting time to, to make that take. Like, I presume there's a lot of people who 
who'll go along with that full stop he's he's definitely the best in the world at the moment and uh, and I think obviously he's come back so well from that injury because there were definitely a lot of questions I thought at the start of the season about you know his uh, that yard of pace that maybe he had lost when you were judging him by you know best defender in the world standard and I think he's got himself back to that level so that's been one of the reasons why Liverpool have gone on this run now and they're going to play every possible game this season which is the first time an English team have have done that so um being fit, having a fully fit squad is something that, that Jurgen Klopp has definitely needed. Uh, for me, one of the most interesting things after the game was Mo Salah coming out saying, I want to play Real Madrid. If you're asking me personally, I want to play Real Madrid. And like we had this a bit of a debate last week about, you know, is it, is like what danger would Real Madrid pose compared to Manchester City? Of course, Manchester City are a better team, but there is just something about this Real Madrid team that would make anybody nervous, I think, especially with the manager that they have and some of the players that they have and the, the maturity of that squad. Um, and I think after what Salah's saying there, I kind of want to see this now. Like, I mean, we've got some fantastic Manchester City-Liverpool games already this season. And yes, they're the two best teams in Europe. And yes, everybody will probably want that final. I kind of want to see I kind of want to see Salah against Real Madrid again. Granted, there will be no Sergio Ramos this time. And that's really the revenge mission that he's personally after. That's his personal crusade. But I think uh, this Liverpool team against Ancelotti, I think that'd be a good matchup. It was a brilliant interview with Salah after the game. He's incredibly honest. Uh, he was asked several questions that you presumed any footballer just after a Champions League semi-final would say nothing. Even when he was asked, would you prefer Manchester City or Real Madrid? The obvious uh, stock answer is, I don't really care at this stage. But he was definite that it was Real Madrid he wanted to play. Like, and you can understand, from Mo Salah's point of view, like revenge. Revenge has to be a huge factor for him. When you think of the impact that the arm injury had on him at that stage when... You know, at that time, we thought it was the peak of his powers. It turns out he got even better. But he will feel that that cost him a Champions League and him maybe being the best player in the world even back then. So I, I'm, maybe there's a little bit this, I, which I thought he was going to say, which would be even more honest, that you know, we've seen what Manchester City are like and they're a much better team than Real Madrid. So obviously we don't want to face them. But he was asked straight afterwards as to you know, the amount of goals he scored, 30 goals, 15 assists, uh, was sort of rubbing it into Trent Alexander-Arnold, how he wouldn't be happy that he now has more assists this season. Then said, actually, you know, assists don't matter that much. It's all about scoring goals. And he was asked by Jay Humphrey, you know, what, do you set a goal at the start of the season? Again, you expect, oh, yeah, but wouldn't say. Yeah, 40 goals. 40 goals is what I thought at the start of the season. I've got 30, so I've got a little bit to go. Will he get 10 goals in the final month of the season? <laughs> I think if he gets 10 goals in the final month of the season, uh, Liverpool will probably win everything. Uh, Liverpool's average pass accuracy over the course of the 34 matches played in the Premier League is 85%. So uh, that's the the whole team's average, which means that obviously loads of players have to be over that average. Um, so Thiago was at 85% last night, was he? Is that what you, was that your figure? Uh, I think so, yeah, or just below it. Well, in the first half, they dropped to what last night? Was it 66%, 66 67%? Yeah. 66 up to, and then 84 in the second. So even in the second half, they were below their season average. Uh, they went pitch. Tiago's average over the course of the season is eighty nine percent. There you go. So, so four. What did you say? Four percent off his average. Not not like not that bad. It's just um, more pronounced the errors in a bigger game. You know, cause he's racking up those stats against the your Villas, your Manchester Cities. Your uh, did he do it against Manchester City in the first game? In the first game, no. But I think in the second game he was. I remember playing in the first game in the second game uh, I, he was a very I, different player the cup game are you talking about the cup game no I'm talking about the league game right the 2-2 where it was his ball that really dragged Liverpool back into it uh, when City were rampant in the early stages of that game uh, so, no he's, you're right it, it, he's the best player in the world you're right you're right it's true I'm not, I'm not saying he's the best player in the world and 
I wouldn't have been sure two, three months ago if he'd be in Liverpool starting 11 for a Champions League final, whereas I think now he is absolutely, absolutely nailed on. I would be interested to see what Liverpool fans think Klopp should do for the Champions League final because you know it has felt all season that Matip has been the number one and has arguably been Liverpool's best centre-back all season. But Kanate has been starting all the European games. So for a Champions League final, do you stick with Kanate? Do you bring Matip back in? No, you bring Surely back Henderson. In. Yeah. Surely after Kade's performance last night, Henderson has to start. All right. In o- the Champions League final. OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Liverpool fans, pick the team for us. Mark Lawrence is going to join us in about five minutes' time. We'll get him to pick the team for the Champions League final as well, assuming um, everybody is fit. Bournemouth were promoted last night, which means that we're going to have a Premier League goalkeeper next season who hasn't been close to the Ireland team. Really, but well, he started one massive game and it went badly wrong against yeah, Serbia. Since, since hasn't then, seen since, yeah, hasn't hasn't been close to it. You would say, like um, nobody's talking about him versus the other two. Um, but if he's playing week in week out next year in the Premier League, which you know maybe they'll replace him. Who knows in the summer? Or hopefully they won't. Seems like they don't need to, and he's um, got a good relationship with the manager. He's got to come back into the reckoning, right? Absolutely. I, I think this conversation around Bazunu Kelleher is far too set in stone. It's totally out of Stephen Kenny's control, even what happens next season. So Gavin Bazunu, player of the season at Portsmouth, comes back to Manchester City. To Manchester City, have they seen enough to say, actually, we want you to stay here and be second choice, be third choice? You know, maybe we'll get, finally get rid of Scott Carson and you can be the other guy with Zach Stefan and Ederson. And suddenly Gavin Bazuna spends a year not playing any football. Or maybe he goes and plays championship. He's at a higher level again. Likewise, Queeveen Kelleher. And if Mark Travers has a six months of good quality first team football in the Premier League, and if Bazuna isn't playing and if Kelleher isn't playing, it's going to be very hard for Stephen Kenny not to reward that. Yeah. And what about Nathan Collins? Is he in our team at the moment? Well, he's, he's probably put himself in a position where he's next in line. Like the back three at the moment... You see, Doherty's injured, so Coleman, you'd expect to go back to right wing back, which opens up a space alongside Duffy and Egan. And Duffy's not and playing. I would say Nathan Collins is Duffy will still play for Ireland during the summer. Now, there's four matches, so he's going okay. to end up play, doing a little bit of rotation. But I think at the moment, Nathan Collins has probably stepped ahead of Dar O'Shea, just with O'Shea's injury. So I think your back three would be Collins, Duffy, Egan with Coleman at right wing back. But I think about three years' time, if if all would oh. go according to plan. Oh, and you Andrew Romanelli. Nathan Collins. Nathan Collins is your back Virgil three. van Dyke and Rio Ferdinand playing for the Republic of Ireland, according to. Um, Roll, all rolled into one. Yeah, no, the two of them. One on one. Yeah, it'd be amazing. So uh, he's, he's Ireland's Virgil van Dyke, says Pat Dolan. We take that. We, t- we, t- we would take. On the range of outcomes of Nathan Collins' career at the moment, we're like, yeah, you could be Virgil van Dyke. We take that. Yeah. We'll cash in on that one. Him and Rio together. That's a World Cup winning team right there. Has, and maybe has, the Euros. Maybe not the World Cup. We don't need to be too greedy. Has Michael Owen even seen Nathan Collins play yet? Exactly. <laughs> Tweet him there, at Michael Owen. Uh, the other big news over the last 24 hours or so is that Shamrock Rovers may be on the hunt for a new manager. This seems to have come out of left field, Nathan. I was completely unaware that Stephen Bradley was uh, on the market for teams like Lincoln City. So Lincoln City have been linked with him. Um, they have sought permission. What's the latest on this? I think that's where it is that uh, it seems conversations are ongoing between Lincoln and Stephen Bradley and the timing has caught everybody off guard, but it's probably caught everyone off guard because Irish football runs a summer season, whereas actually if you're Lincoln, now is the perfect time. Michael Appleton has gone as manager. They finished 17th in League One and they want a manager who can come in and dictate their transfer policy and get in ahead of preseason training, get a full preseason ahead of the start of the season. Uh, It seems their football director spends a lot of time in Ireland 
looking at players, has obviously seen a lot of Shamrock Rovers and likes what he see with Stephen Bradley. And while initially you would look at this and think Shamrock Rovers uh, going for a third straight league title, heading in towards Champions League football this season, building something really good out in Tala, why would you leave? But it's just a reminder of where Ireland is in the footballing pyramid, that he would be going to Lincoln, uh, I think you could say an unfashionable team, certainly as we would see it, who get a far bigger attendance every game up at 9,000. Uh, his wage budget would uh, be transformed over 5 million a year. His own personal salary, I'd imagine, would be transformed. And his own reputation, if he was to achieve something at Lincoln, would also be transformed compared to what he could do at Shamrock Rovers unless they went on a run in Europe, which you know there's really no guarantees. So on the outside, it seems like a complete shock and it could well be an absolute shock to the system to Shamrock Rovers ahead of their biggest week of the season where they have three home games in a row over the next seven days, finishing up with Derry City in Tala on Friday week and are three points behind Tala. Uh, you know, this could really shake up what happens in the Premier Division this season. But from Stephen Bradley's point of view, and reports are that Steve McPhail and Glenn Cronin could also be in the mix to leave as well, it's a bit of a no-brainer because, unfortunately, if you're there's no football industry for coaches really in this country. So if Stephen Bradley, if this week were to go badly wrong, if Europe doesn't go well during the summer, and if he ends up leaving Shamrock Rovers at the end of the season, where, where do you go, go now? Yeah. Where yeah. do you go? Like The next job is maybe a part-time job, whereas actually go to Lincoln, and Lincoln last season got to the playoff final, get promoted to championship. Suddenly you're in that industry where okay. you constantly have a job. Who who would replace him at Rovers? Um, the lads were speculating about potentially Robbie Keane. Is that is that realistic? Well, he's very well connected at the club and he's volunteered at the club at underage system. And when you look around the board and uh, various people behind the scenes, he would, you know, he would have a lot of links there. So he is a huge name. Remember, they're in a very different position to where they were when Stephen Bradley came in and at the end of 2015, where, you know, Rovers hadn't won the league for five years. So Dock were the dominant team. They tried to do something different and did it brilliantly by bringing in a young management team. Bradley was early 30s at that stage. McPhail had just been retired. And they went with the academy system, brought in a lot of young players. Now they're the big dogs. Now they are the champions back-to-back. So do you look for a different type of manager? Do you want that big name who can elevate the club in different ways? You know, Robbie Keane is, is most certainly that. He's obviously on the lookout for a job. Keane against stuff is <laughs> something everybody can sign up for. Uh, if you were to look inside the league, there's probably no real options there at the moment, uh, unless they were to go for Keith Long and you know all his experience of Bohemians. They've obviously dipped into bowls quite a few times uh, for players over the last few years. But you know Rory Higgins isn't going to leave Derry uh, with their billionaire owner back at his hometown club, top of the league. Uh, then they've Vinnie Part. Somebody. Well, I was just going to say, if you're looking for people just outside, like Vinnie. Uh, I'm sure would feel that he should be in the mix. League winner with Dundalk. He was from, a local boy. From Tala, I think it's a big deal. Played with Rovers. Uh, he's a regular. Anytime I'm out in Tala, you see Vinny there uh, sitting in the posh seats in Tala. So I'm sure he's got some connections there as well. At the other names, you know, internally and maybe maybe in the short term, uh, Stephen Robinson, who's running the academy, uh, Graham Gartland has been doing some work with us, you know, maybe they're potentially in the running. But Stephen Rice is one of the more interesting names who keeps coming up over the last 24 hours. So Stephen Rice is currently... Stephen Kenny's chief scout and opposition analyst. He replaced Rory Higgins. He is really highly rated. Okay. Has a great history at Rovers, was their captain, scored the goal at White Hart Lane, uh, knows the academy, coached the 17s and 19s. He would probably be, alongside Robbie Keane, the favourite, but that would mean Stephen Kenny potentially 
losing another member of his backroom staff. And I don't know if you saw in the last 48 hours, John Eustace, his new assistant coach, has been strongly linked with a move back to England and potentially a full-time job with Queen's Park Rangers or another side in the championship. So there's a few little things in the mix, but definitely in terms of where the season was going for Shamrock Rovers, it shakes things up completely. It spices, if, if he goes. It spices Maybe Stephen up. McPhail stays and decides not to move with him and Stephen McPhail gets the job. All right. We'll keep a close eye on that in the uh, coming 24 hours or so. We'd hope for that to be wrapped up. A reminder, OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. I'd like to say Mark Lawrence is with us to talk about Liverpool last night. Mark, at halftime, what was your level of concern about what the outcome was going to be? Oh, not much. Um, because I think it was a monumental effort by Villarreal in the first half. Um, and you knew eventually they would, they would run out of steam. And also, you get a half-time and clock gets in amongst the players and, and sorts everything out. So, no, I wasn't, I wasn't unduly bothered, to be honest with you. And Liverpool against any team will, will always score and always make a host of chances. And in the end, could have won even more comfortably. Is there anything in the template that Villarreal showed last night for other teams to try and emulate? There's, a, there's very few games left, granted. It, we're getting to the end of the yeah. season and there's a lot of tape where uh, those long diagonal balls over the fullbacks' heads. Villa did it in the uh, crazy game last year, but teams don't seem to go for it too often and it doesn't seem to work too often, but it was working last night in the first half. In the first half, yeah. It, it absolutely totally was and with the crowd behind them and obviously the pitch was a little bit wet as well and um, slowed the game down a little bit, which helped Villarreal. But it's it's really, really difficult because of this this Liverpool press. I mean, we didn't really see it in the first half, which is most unusual. But once once that gets going, it's it's really difficult for opposition players. I mean, we saw in the first leg against Villarreal in midfield, they never got a chance to get their head up any of their midfield players, and they've got one or two decent players because Liverpool were pressing, and it's 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 like a swarm of bees against you just. You can't sort of get up and look and think, oh, you know, I'll, I'll pass it through to them because they're on you. Um, they didn't do that first half. Um, so it's possible. I mean, C- City have been, obviously, Manchester City have been really, really competitive against them in that particular way where they've kept the ball against them. But, you know, you're talking about the two best teams in, in world football in, in terms of club football. So it's, I can't, I can't see... I can see City doing it in the final, obviously, if they get through. I couldn't see Madrid doing it, but they've got other qualities, obviously. Uh, Mo Salah was pretty sorry, Nathan. Go on, far away. Sorry, was, uh, just on uh, the halftime and the potential changes, obviously yeah. everybody is, is raving about um, Luis Diaz and his introduction, and there was almost reassurance of having Henderson and Diaz and so much depth on the bench. Yeah. But if everyone knew Diaz was going to make that sort of a difference, should he not be in the starting eleven? Um, well, he just he, he keeps changing it, doesn't he? So I don't, I don't think he has a worry about stuff stuff like that. And it just wasn't a day for Jota, which was eminently uh, obvious to everybody. And you know he's come on and been outstanding. And I think the thing with Diaz as well is he just it gives him this width and this pace, and all of a sudden he stretched the game out. And all, you know, and then Liverpool have got they've got a little bit more room in midfield. Um, Villarreal, the, the press that they had in the first half obviously was on the wane uh, because, as I said, that monumental effort they put in the, in, in the first half. So um, it was it wasn't inspired. It was just it was just a good good tactical change. And to be honest with you, in the first half, he could probably have changed seven or eight of the outfield players. I heard you talking about um, Thiago and everything. I mean, he, he was, that's probably the worst he's played for, for ages. And he, he, even he couldn't pass to a red shirt as well. So, um, look, 
you know, over the over the two games, if you split them into what four halves, I mean, Liverpool have been outstanding in three of them, three of them, and they were absolutely average in, in, in one of them. But against a team like Villarreal, it, it was enough to get through. When Klopp goes with that front three, why doesn't he play Mane through the middle and Jota on the left? Why doesn't he? Yeah, given Mane's been so good at the central <laughs> position when Diaz has been on the um, pitch recently. Probably because he thinks he doesn't need to. Um, look, I mean, nobody knows better than him because he sees these players day in, day out. I think, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're thinking about the final now and you think that everybody's fit, he, he'll play Mane through the middle and he'll play Salah on the right and he'll play... Uh, Diaz on the left so um, and Jota obviously come on because Jota as we know can come on and get your goal and he goes into great positions unlike any of the other four or five forwards as well so and I heard you talking before about and, and Henderson would play for me I mean um, Cater just cannot be consistent and that, that's a problem for him and sometimes the game passes him, passes him by and I think you know the other thing with, with Henderson is when he plays there he's, he's is good with Trent because obviously Trent just bombs on all the time and, and Henderson will sit in when Trent goes past him. So, um, And I would play Matic. Uh, as good as canati has been in Europe, I would play Matic because he gives you something a little bit extra. OK, so, is, so does this matter who they're playing in the final? If it's City or if it's Real Madrid, does it matter for you picking that team? Yeah. Well, well you just pick your best team. You just pick your best team and, uh, and, and Matic's in my best team. And the thing, the thing about Matip is great relationship with with um, with Van Dyke, but he, he'll come out and, he, and he'll break the ranks and, and come through with the ball, and he will he will commit opposition players. Which is if you're a midfield player, in that team is fab because it gives you a little bit more space. And yeah, I just that, that's that's Liverpool's best team, and why you know go to to the. Uh, Champions League final. Why would you not pick your best team? So just to just for for clarity's sake, Kanate uh, yeah. is out, Matip is in, Kate is out, yeah. Henderson's in, and Jota's yeah. out, and Diaz starts. Yeah, absolutely, all day long. And that's a team to beat either Real Madrid or Man City. So we were talking earlier about um, uh, Salah saying he wants Real Madrid in the final. That's what he wants. I can see why. I can see why. I think that's like I would want yeah. Real Madrid as well. It's just easier. Yeah. It's better. It's not the all English final. It's like well, Salah also wants four grand a week, but he's not going to get it. But yeah, look, I mean, he might. I mean, <laughs> well, yeah, he might. I mean, uh, man's going to cause ructions if he does. But um, yeah, I would. I would rather play. I would rather play. Sorry, um, Real Madrid than the Manchester City. Manchester City knows so much about Liverpool and, and, and vice versa, and that would be a real kind of tactical. Battle. I don't think it would be a great game either. Well, finals generally aren't anyway, are they? Because the fear of losing. But um, Madrid can only play one way. And I know you're going to throw, you know, Benzema at me. And yeah, quite rightly so. Best striker in the world at the moment. Un- unbelievable run that he's had. But you can get at you can get at Real Madrid. I do not fancy them defensively at all. And this Liverpool team tend to score against anybody at, at any level. And I think we, you'd, you'd probably get a better game between Real Madrid and, uh, and Liverpool. And I'm not being disrespectful to City. It's just the fact two English teams who know each other you know, inside out and you know what will happen on the day. And um, Yeah, I would be happy with Madrid. And of course, there's a little bit of history. Isn't there? 1981, Alan Kennedy and all that kind of stuff as well in Paris. So um, that, that would be ideal for Liverpool, I feel. Uh, go ahead. Uh, well, I, I mean, uh, the quality of the performance in the second half, obviously, um, maybe a little bit 
makes us forget about what happened in the first half. We were putting down yeah. to a bit of complacency. Is that or no, no, no? I just think I just think I just think Real Villarreal Real Villarreal Villarreal were outstanding in the first half. It was like it was honestly superhuman effort from them, um, and it was their cup final. But unfortunately for them, it was their cup final in forty-five minutes and. Um, you know the, the conditions weren't great. That's not an excuse because Villarreal played in the conditions, but they were just they were they they out Liverpool Liverpool basically in, in the first half. Unfortunately, you know the, the, the game's ninety minutes. You have a half time. You can sit down and have a think and change the thing around, which is what Klopp did. And you know Diaz coming in just just made the pitch so much bigger for Liverpool and got them a little bit of space, and then they could start passing because the pass in the first half was hopeless. The two full-backs were guilty of two of the two, with the two goals of ball-watching. You know, it was Liverpool at the worst. But at least, you know, like any good team, they parked that at half-time and went, right, you know, we, we, we start again. And it won't come to be. But, but by the way, by the way, of all Champions League goalkeepers I've seen, and Carrius included, what about the fella in the goal for Villarreal, Rui? I mean, everything went through his legs. He doesn't, he doesn't look like a goalkeeper and... He was all over the place, which certainly helped Liverpool. Carriers included is the worst thing any Liverpool fan <laughs> can say. That's the harshest. That's <laughs> well, Carriers was hopeless, wasn't he? Yes, Carriers. Put the mildly. God, God love him, but Carriers is the worst player that Klopp's ever signed, and he's is is the only one that he failed to improve. And it was a gamble, complete gamble, and it and it just didn't uh, come off. And and when. When you know he turns up with his brand new G red G thingy Mercedes, whatever it is, with a big K and an R on the front, um, or whatever his initials are, um, L L K or something. I don't know. You know you're in trouble after two weeks of signing him. Um, what what's going to happen tonight? <laughs> uh, oh yeah, good one. I think I somehow fancy that, that City will win because. I mean, Madrid will score. We know they'll score, don't we? But they, they'll they'll leave themselves a little bit open, and um, yeah, I just I just think City will get through. I would have been more convinced City getting through if it had been four two, which really, you know, when that's in that fab game the other week, it was you know at four two, City just should have shut up shop and go right. There's, there's no more goals happening here, and two goal lead would have made all the difference. But no, I, I, I see City getting through, unless of course. Unless, of course, uh, Mr. Guardiola decides to do something left field, which he's done sometimes with overthinking teams. Is it like is that it? Is that like the, the extent of your concern? Is there not anything that you saw last night about you know going to Spain and let's not forget going up against the Spanish champions this time at at the Bernabeu? Like, is, is is there not something within Real Madrid's control tonight to actually take this thing uh, to at least extra time? Yeah, possibly. Yeah, I don't, I don't. I'm not being disrespectful to them, but you took you know. Um, City, City along with Liverpool the best best two teams in the world and I mean they, they, they've walked La Liga Real Madrid but they, they don't come up against these two teams very very often and I know they scored three uh, at uh, at the Etihad etc but no I just you know City are a top top team um, and they will make they will make loads of chances in this game and you know along the way I just I just think they're better than Real Madrid and, and I think, you know, when we talk about Liverpool pressing, um, City will press tonight and press with the ball as well. In terms of something left field, like maybe even dropping Gabriel Jesus will be left field at this stage because, you know, his form is so good. Are City a better team when Jesus starts when they have that focal point rather than the, the false nine that he sometimes likes to go with? No. No. 
I think in in or out doesn't make any difference. They're just they're just uh, unbelievably talented players that they've got, and you know I think we all made the mistake at the start of the season. They've not signed a striker. They've not done this. They've not done that. And uh, you know, it looks like they might win the league. They might win the Champions League. Um, so yeah, um, no, just they're just a, just an unbelievable top team. He's had a good run, Jesus, but. I'm still a little bit with him, you know. Can you really count on him in the big games? Um, I'm not sure yet. Even so, and, and I think the manager's exactly that way with him. I mean, he's obviously having a run now because he's in a great run of form. So hopefully, he plays and scores. But um, you never know with Pep. Can we go back to the 400 grand a week for Salah? The the um, the impact that that would have on the rest of the change room is that the reason why the contract hasn't been signed? Do you think? Yeah, well, they don't want to give him that much money, do they? And that's understandable because you've got whatever you are, whatever the football club is, you've got you've got to balance a book. So, so if they go and give him four hundred grand a week, well, who's the first to knock at the door? Well, it's probably Van Dijk, and then it's pro- it's Mane as well. I mean, Van Dijk's contract's not up, but he'll be thinking, hold on a minute. So he'll be knocking on the door, and Mane obviously because he's the next one in terms of the, the contracts, and it's just gonna it's it's like a can of worms, and. Um, I think I know they made him a really, really good offer, but obviously Mo Mo thinks it's not good enough. And I think one of the things is that I think he's pointed to look at Grealish at Manchester City, look at the money that he's on, and he's he's not even in the team. But that doesn't really matter. But he, him and his agent will obviously use that in terms of negotiation, won't they? It's, I don't know how much Grealish is on. Is it around about four hundred grand a week? Is that what the feeling is? Well, I don't know how much, but I think he's he's on more than Mo's on at the moment. Right. So, you know, Mo, Mo and his agents are in there saying, Greenish is on this and, you know, my, my man's not on that and he, he needs to have this because he's the best player in the world and, again, you know, voted best player in the country, all those kind of things. So they'll be giving it the full lot, won't they? Grealish is on, according to Mark, at 360 grand a week in Euros, second paid, highest paid player in this Manchester City dressing room after Kevin De Bruyne, who's on 420. Right. That's just amazing. There you go. That's pr- probably a combination of uh, extortionate wages and also probably rating Jack Grealish higher in that dressing room than he really is. He's like he's not the second best player in that dressing room. Yeah, 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 absolutely. But it's as far as Mo and his and his agents are concerned, he's he's on the money, isn't he? Uh, if you're Liverpool, what do you do? Um. Yeah. Well, I think. I think you've got to be quite sort of hard with it and say, look, you know, this is this is it. This is this is our final offer, um, and just see what happens. I mean, you know, if they say no, it doesn't mean it's the end of it, does it? So um, it's not like he's going to say, oh well, you know, I'm I'm, I'm off straight away. So, but they, you know, they've got a, there's a duty to the football club that you know you can't you can't just keep giving you know unbelievable contracts to people and I, and we know what a what a fabulous player he's been and I think this has been his best season because he's also this season been 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 very creative you know in assists etc as well and uh, I think just more of a t- team player than he's ever been but they've got to, they've got to balance the books they're building a brand new stand as well another 6000 etc and um they've done a good job the Americans but you know you can't you can't they'll probably feel that they've been held to ransom if he wants 400 grand a week because it as I say it's, it's it's a real problem and one thing you don't want you don't want unrest in the dressing room where players are looking around at most salary and doesn't score one day and it's like you know well, what are you doing for all your money and I should be on this and you, you know what football dressing rooms can be like so well, it ruined Manchester United they, they completely screwed up when they gave Alexis Sanchez far more money than everybody else and he, he really wasn't yeah. worth it and they haven't recovered from that like listen 
Listen, worse than that, what about Arsenal? With, with Ozil and the fellow who's, who went to Barcelona in the end. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, you, you'd, you'd think, you'd think after Ozil, they wouldn't, Arsenal wouldn't have made that same mistake again. So, but football clubs do it, don't they? Oh, just that one extra player is this, is that, the other, and... Yeah. Okay, what is... Sorry, I was just going to ask, uh, does the impact that Diaz has made change Liverpool's outlook as well? And maybe not even Diaz, but from a year ago, Jota's arrival, whereas the first yeah. three was set in stone. Who was the backup? Whereas Diaz has made more of an impression in the first six months than any of the other three made in the first six months of their time. That absolutely. actually, they have options. Oh, yeah, ab- absolutely they have. But they don't want to lose Salah because he's, you know, he's 20, 20 odd goals. And... You know, just as I say, the way he's been playing this season as well. And, you know, if you've got five, why don't you keep five? It doesn't matter about Origi because Origi's gone anyway. But um, Origi, Origi, every time he starts for Liverpool, is basically not very good. Comes on as a sub occasionally and, and, and will score for you. But, you know, um, that apart, there's, there's not, not a great deal about him. So he's, he's obviously going to walk out the doors as well. But no, I mean, Diaz, Diaz has been fab. Well, and Jota, they've both been fab. Um, and... Diaz is a bit of a, is a bit reminds me of Suarez in many many ways in in, in his attitude and you know he's tough you know all the Colombians are tough but he's since since day one when he came on as a sub I mean uh, the the mob at Anfield completely took to him straight away and fellow doesn't even speak any link, any English and you know apparently the lads are like giving him some words to. Uh, to, to learn, you can imagine what they're giving him, can't you? <laughs> well, you can, can't you? I mean, you know, it's like, yeah, right, okay. Yeah. <laughs> if anybody wants to text us in a list, we might not read them out. <laughs> I think, well, I think, I think they probably, instead of saying hello, the, the word they probably said, when you meet someone, just say F something, something, something. That's what they do. That's, that's the kind of, the way dressing rooms are. <laughs> Mark, good stuff. Thanks, Willie, for joining us. Cheers. Pleasure. Mark, Mark Lawrence and giving us his thoughts there. Uh, a quick, some quick comments. James Duffy says we kicked up a few gears in the second half. But we needed to strong bench proving vital. Stephen says Madrid will allow Liverpool player from the back. City won't. They will press immediately. And Jessica Hannan says if we play City in the Champions League final, Henderson cannot start. Nathan, he offered nothing going forward or defensively in the Etihad and simply doesn't have the pace for it anymore. If it's Madrid, then possibly. I think Mark summed it up. I think it's the protection he gives to Alexander Arnold as much as anything, is why you want to start Henderson. It does feel as though a lot more goes through Liverpool's midfield when Thiago and Keita are there, whereas they can be a bit more direct if it's Henderson. And for Liverpool, I wouldn't be afraid of building your team around getting the best out of Alexander-Arnold and of having Matty no. and Henderson there, which I think it does, no. uh, assist that. Can I good, uh, Matty better at the moment? Yeah, as I said, Matty has probably been better than Van Dijk this season. And the way he just strides forward and can skip through a couple of challenges opens things up for for Alexander-Arnold as well. So the two of them in the Champions League final, definitely. All right, Nathan, good stuff. Thanks very much for joining us this morning. A reminder, OTVM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. It is 13 minutes past eight. Keith Wood is up talking rugby next, but make sure you stay tuned in the ad break. It's the latest clip from our latest episode of the Koi Gig podcast. Rihanna Jarrett was talking to Kathy McNamee and Pearl Slattery about her decision to move away from the WSL to the championship side, London City Lionesses. The Koi Gig pod on OTB Sports is in association with Cadbury FC, official snack partner to the Republic of Ireland women's national team. OTB AM. It's 17 minutes past eight. Keith Wood is with us. Keith, good morning to you. How are you? 
Very good, thank you. Good morning. It's uh, the week of big, big, big European games. Unfortunately for Munster, the game's not in Thomond. I wonder, is it is it an issue anymore? Is it something people are talking about locally? Is it disappointing or does it matter? Um, I think all of those, no, without sitting on the fence, I think people are a little bit peeved. It's not there. Um, uh, decisions made a long time ago on both sides, both from picking for a concert which they do need to do and have consistently done. Um, and then the changes within the structure of of European rugby uh, have made this become a situation. So I think that makes it a bit awkward. I think people would like to be in Thoman Park, would like to see the game there, would like to have that huge fill-up in their in their you know, their lives. We're still trying to come to terms with uh, post-COVID idea. So I think uh, a lot of people would rather be in the ground Having said that, they don't mind travel up the uh, the M7 to, to Dublin, uh, to the Aviva, especially when they're not playing Leinster, because that hasn't gone very well for them uh, as of late. But uh, look, I think they look at the game as as the reason they support Munster and the players will look at it as for the reason that they play rugby, actually, because now we're in, in cup rugby. I know as well there's been a bit of criticism about the fact that the ground hasn't been sold out very often, but it's it's always a chicken and egg thing. The success brings fans and fans help the success to bet in. But the team has to bring the success first. I know you're supposed to support through thin, thick and thin, but like at the same time, there is definitely an element of casual fans who come aboard the bandwagon and the core support is always going to be there. But the core support isn't big enough to fill every stadium all the time. And so it's occasions like this where you get the you, you win back the hearts and minds of the ones who are wavering a little bit. And that's why it's actually quite an important hinge point for the team, for the club, for the franchise, however you want to talk about the, the Munster identity. Yeah, I, look, of course it is. And I, I think if... Um, I don't get jumping up and down as much as people that have been maybe criticising the, the not full stadia. Um, I think we've had a very strange couple of years and I don't think it's just down to fickle fans and uh, yes you're supposed to um, stick with the team in the downside but you can't accuse the Munster supporters of not sticking with Munster for the last 10 years when when they haven't won trophies so uh, I don't think that's the case I think that it's as much to do with with COVID I think it's as much to do with uh, increasing in prices and costs and everything else that's going around and um, I think that's part and parcel of it. I think you'll see a huge amount of people going up. I think you might get in the region of forty thousand at this game, which would be which would be unbelievable. I think there's over thirty two or three thousand tickets sold already. So um, I think it'll be an unbelievable occasion for it. Um, when you're looking to see whether everything, and I know we, you know, when we talk in the media, we kind of we flare things up a lot and kind of over talk some of them at times, but. Um, I think the requirement for Munster on this game is to show how they have changed over the last number of years, that when they get to this level of the competition against one of the big boys coming back, and they've had success against Toulouse um, only a couple of years ago in um, in Thoman Park, um, it's are they able to play at the level that is required and... Um, or are they going to go quiet like they have done in the last couple of years? Now, albeit against very big teams like Saracens and uh, and Leinster. And so I think that's what we want to see, actually, is, has, is there a huge change in performance? 
um, or does it revert under pressure? So the wish is that it'll be um, it'll be a mixture of actually what we've seen for the last few weeks. I mean, I still want a bit of pragmatism, so you're not kind of throwing everything out. But I think there has been some green shoots over the last few weeks, albeit against teams who who haven't been at the top of their game. It looks like Toulouse are on the way back. You know, they've leapfrogged La Rochelle over the weekend. They're in a position where um, they're they're used to being, which is competing at the end of the of the season, and uh, they seem to time their run incredibly well. I know you were on commentary for the game last year uh, in in Thoma between Toulouse and Munster. Was that down to game plan, the way that game finished up, the second half in particular, or was it down to just a golfing quality between these two teams? Um, both, actually. Um, the golfing quality is, if you're looking at Toulouse, they have, it's a team of unbelievable riches and capability and size. And uh, and for me, um, uh, in that game last year, it was uh, it was the size that, that counted at the end, you know, and... Um, and the the lack of taking of a couple of opportunities. And so I think you need to make more opportunities and take more of them if you're, if you're playing and trying to, to, to play against a team like this. I don't think you can sit back at any stage and hope to ride it out in terms of, of fitness um, because uh, dealing with some of the size of these guys for a consistent period of time... Um, I think that puts chinks in into the energy levels. Like Munster's defence this year has been phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. And in the last couple of weeks, they've started attacking more. Now against against Ulster, and I haven't spoken since that, but against Ulster, they had they played against a team that was had, it was like a team with a burst tire. They had lost. They just they ran out of all energy. Um, uh, Ulster did, and yet Munster barely won at the end. You know and um, you know, you can't sit back at any stage at all. But if you're given space, Monster will will attack. But I'm not so certain they'll get a huge amount of space against Toulouse. Um, what team do you pick? That's the, the other fundamental question here. And it seems to be around specifically the number nine. Uh, we, we talked with Quinny about it yesterday. He was like, you get extra physicality and extra defence. And, you know, this is going to be a game where that's important. Uh, given the, the sheer physical size of Toulouse. But equally, if you're going to be the one who is doing the attacking and if you're going to be the one trying to in, in, inflict your game, then maybe you start with Craig Casey and you start with this unpredictability and he's the agent of chaos that you need to bring to the party for them to go, well, what are we doing here? How do we defend this? Yeah, um, I think there's an element of that. Um, I'm I'm caught myself on it. Um, strangely, as Craig has started to... Um, I think rise his standards this year, which he has definitely. And um, I think he seemed to be back playing to the way he was when he joined the squad a couple of years ago, which was uh, at a million miles an hour. And um, I think he needs to play his style and not slow it down style. Um, but I do think Monster will kick quite a lot in this game. And um, I do think they'll try and manoeuvre their way into the game and trust their defence a lot. And it's whether they pick Connor for that. I think Connor has actually played really well this year. I just think he's he's come back into far better form. So it's a great position to be in to have two very different types of scrum halves. Um, I could see them st- starting with Connor and having Craig getting a decent amount of time, like thirty minutes, to try and burn out 
um, any of those big forwards sort of after you know 10 minutes in the second half I could see that happening definitely um, it's hard to figure out which is the right way to do it you know for, for Munster I think if I think if Munster had been playing with more in, uh, attacking intent for the whole year I think in that situation I think you may then go and say um, you'd, you'd start with Craig I just don't know it's quite hard to figure out what they're going to actually do because when Munster play well against a team, it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to pick the same team afterwards. That hasn't been this case uh, this year. But look, I'd like to see them play and attack a bit more. Um, but I still think it's trying to get the balance of that right. And I don't know that... I don't, see, I, it's almost not, not trusting it, but I, against Ulster in particular, they were given space. They were given space to attack. They were space to... Um, change angles behind the gain line, but Toulouse did um, give space to Ulster over the two legs. Similarly, like a, you know, there's a bit of easy oziness around Toulouse who kind of are so good that they're like, ah, look, we'll catch you in the end. Don't worry about it. And I, I think the thing to do is start with Craig Casey. I think the thing that'll happen is Van Graan is conservative, and he's going to start with what he knows is very, very strong. Absolutely, as you say, back in form. Number nine has played for the Lions and has reached that level where he's, you know, been captain material for the Lions, and so that's why I think he's going to pick Conor Murray to start. Personally, I go with Craig Casey and bring Murray off the bench to seal the game, but that's yeah. why he's getting paid the big bucks. Yeah, well, look, I think Munster in this game, um, it's okay. It's quarter final, um, and it's it's happened more recently in semi finals. But I would do as we were saying. I would, I would attack full bore. Um, I think Munster needs to show that they're making a progression, um, that it doesn't revert back to um, to just slowing the game down and, and kicking the ball from the twenty-two to the halfway line. Just I think they, you know, they need to be able to trust their skills, and it's whether their skills are then good enough or not, and that becomes part of the issue that they have. But um, I think there's been too many uh, semi-finals uh, in particular where Munster haven't. They've turned up for the game and they've continued to play that style that they play and it keeps you very close. Um, but ultimately, it's it's led to losses. So that ha- like that has that cycle has to break at some stage. And I think it would be disheartening for for Munster if they don't show um, a lot more of what they've showed in the last few weeks. They don't show that at, when the pressure comes on. I think that'll be the mark of of. Um, uh, of conservatism, then at that stage when you look at it. But having said all that, like I'm not negative looking into this game at all. I think, I think Munster have shown shoots. I think there's been a few injuries which has hampered them a little bit in the last few weeks. I'm not talking about the long term ones. I'm talking Ty Byrne in particular. It's great to see the possibility of Conway coming back. Um, but like there there seems to be a little bit more jaunt to their step in the last few weeks so let's see how much of that is real and see whether it's able to stand up to Toulouse um, Do you start Conway or is Mike Haley playing well enough at the moment you think actually you know what Conway's going to be on the bench which means that I have real strength and depth there if anything bad happens Yeah um, I would start Conway absolutely I think he has been um uh, he had a bit of a dip last year, but this year he's been absolutely fantastic. I don't know the nature of the injury. I don't know to how close he is to to being right. But he's if he, he's only going to be in the squad if he's fully if if he's if he's fit. So I would play him and 
say, go out there and play as hard as you possibly can. And when you burn yourself out, we'll take you off. And do you start him at fullback? Because like Zebo, I, I think it has this X factor. And I, I yeah, um, I'm not sure. I, I, I'm not sure. I think Zebo has given a bit of a spark back and um, he is a very, very natural footballer. And um, I think there's an excitement factor with him as well. But there's an excitement factor with Conway too. Different, but um, uh, Conway seems to be more lethal um, uh, at the moment. But I don't know. It's it's uh, Look, that's, that's why the coaches have to pick the teams. It's kind of fun when you, when you look at it. Like I look at Zebo and he doesn't look, um, he often doesn't look like he, he cares, but he cares very deeply. You know, that's just that sort of laconic nature of his, but he really cares and he, and he wants to have a bit of fun. And, um, I think if we're to be honest, we are, we could always do with a bit of fun in the team. So yeah. look, there's difficult decisions, which is the right place you, you want to be, you know? No, it's, you know, the team is not picking itself. Uh, straightforward because of injuries it's like there's a bit of strength and depth there and, and that's the thing that will give Munster fans hope you sound like you're hopeful of a victory well I am hopeful of a victory and the, the, the point you make about Toulouse being as if their class will out at the end um, the only thing I'd hold against that at the moment is they're now coming to the business end of the of the season and uh, with all their internationals back there's a lot of players who won a Grand Slam this year there is a lot of uh, drive in that team. Um, you know, they beat La Rochelle last week, but you'd expect them to, to win at home. Um, I think this is not as daunting for them because it's in the Aviva. Um, I think uh, Toulouse are the favourites for it, uh, which is a hard place when Munster um, supposedly playing at home. But um, yeah, I do think Toulouse are the favourites for it. And um, I think their strength will more likely hold out in the end but if the green shoots that we've seen over the last few weeks are real um, if if under pressure they they are given um, uh, they manage to build on that sense of confidence well then this is a, a victory that Munster can get Okay let's talk a little bit about Leinster who are favourites despite the fact they're going to Leicester and they've clearly got screwed over as they were as we all knew they would be uh, when uh, the COVID situation happened, everybody else got a free pass except Leinster and unfortunately they're reaping the rewards of it now by having to go to Leicester. They've managed their squad really well. Um, Lancaster stayed in Dublin with the team while Leo took the B team down to South Africa and there were some incredible performances so the future is pretty bright for them. In the present, the Ireland team that will take the field um, against Leicester is it strong enough to be able to go and win away from home against a really informed Leicester team who appear to be getting back to the old Leicester style of being one of the best teams in Europe? Yeah, I, look, Leicester are totally transformed. I, I Steve Warthwick has done an incredible job. He only took over whatever it was in, in the middle of last year, at the end of last year, Um He's brought some some decent signings in with it, but some of their players have been playing fantastic. They're also benefiting strangely from um, George Ford not being involved in the England setup um, for for um, for elements of it and not playing a huge number of games because he's pulling all the strings. Um, a lot of those players are leaving, and that's interesting as well uh, for them because that's 
Um, these are clubs that have done brought a lot of players back or brought them to a higher level. Um, Ellis Genge in particular, uh, who has been phenomenal this year. So, but they're leaving at the end of the year. So when that happens, um, will they want to leave with a couple of trophies? And um, I think they're in a very good position for the Premiership, even though it becomes knockout at the end, which is difficult. Um, again, a lot of Leicester's... Um, um, I'm not saying success because the success at the start of the year was fantastic, but they had a bit of a blip and now they're back again, but built on the back of Bristol Bears last week who they beat by 30 points. Bristol were abject and have decided that they're not tackling uh, anymore this season. That's what it seems like. Um, and uh, But Leicester fully put them to the sword and and play well, play an exciting style and are becoming incredibly exacting. Um, and with all that said, and even in Welford Road, which used to be an incredible fortress, uh, I remember winning there the first time, but Quinns hadn't ever won there. And um, and uh, it was a horrible game and it was a, it's a horrible place to play. And they're, they, I mean, they're a really good baying crowd, kind of dismissive and great rugby crowd, but they'll slag, slag you to bits Um uh, led on by my father-in-law, who'll be shouting uh, as loud as he possibly can against whoever's coming over there. It's a great place to go and play. It, it's it's a fortress this year, but that's not really um, for all of these players. Is that enough to to go against Leinster on fire? And um, I think Leinster will go with a great team. Uh, I think they'll go. Um, with no expectation, with, ex- with an expectation of winning, of going and playing incredibly well, and from from the comments that we've heard coming out of the camp this week, they've run themselves into the ground to be sharp, and it looks like that's what they want to do: is they want to run these guys and grind them down as hard as they can. It's going to be tough in the scrum time. I think the battle alone, uh, watching Genge um, against Tyke Furlong, is going to be something. But um, I think I think Leinster have to go with this game thinking that they're going to go and win and then proving it every minute of it. And that's what they've done often in these big games. I think they, they look much stronger this year than they have for the last for the last number of years. I think there's an awful lot of players playing very well. Um, I think they'll have had a bit of a break, which they need, but they'll be hungry for it too on the same token. So I look, I would expect Leinster to win, but it's kind of great to see Leicester back in us. They are, they are a very serious a European team and they need to be at the top table for the competition to be at the top table so it's kind of good to see them back When you say that they're impressing you more this year than in previous years because of form is, is that it or, or are there other factors at play is, is it just kind of the, the confluence of people being in, in the right vein of form at the right time um, I Look in as much as Ireland have maybe a heightened Leinster system. Um, I think Andy Farrell has made more changes to the to the back line, to the manner in which they play. I think they protect their 10 an awful lot more. Um, I think if you were looking at a couple of years ago and you were saying your old halves were, were Johnny Sexton and, and Ross Byrne, you'd, you'd target them uh, far more often. Um, and uh, they would tend to drift back a little bit deeper and um and that's the that's the place to put Leinster under pressure actually. Um now with the manner in which they're playing, there's there's an awful lot of different options. The players are protected more. They're not they're not on the on the contact line. Other people are, you know, a bit more 
um, robust individuals are tape, able to take those uh, passes and hits on the gain line rather than than the tens, and they look far more secure for it. But um, Josh van der Fleer is having a season of seasons. Um, uh, great to see Robbie Henshaw back, looking you know, um, I think looking fresh again, you know, and. Um, I think they've managed their players incredibly well. And I, I also think their strength and depth means that they can manage their players very well. And um, Leo Cullen and Lancaster have picked very different teams at different times because of looking after their players. And I think that's the the, the joy of having a squad of the quality that they have. It is the Ireland team playing Leicester this weekend. Like, we should expect to beat Leicester, right? Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I, I don't think it, I think it's tough and I think it's different. Um, and I think the challenge, that is a challenge in itself. And you say, well, sure, we're an international team. We should beat, we should beat these guys. Uh, it doesn't necessarily just work like that. Sure. It's, it's a fight. But I would, yeah. Yeah. I look, I, but I would say, you know, like the fear I have, strangely, the fear I have all the time now talking about rugby is the, um, whether it gets decided by a red card. Yeah. Or three or four yellow cards or things like that. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. Uh, and that's that kind of throws every conversation you have into into a little bit of a um, like what if? Not that it matters, but like what if? What if happens? And now I, I have to say, I put I, I put that squarely on the players. The players need to tackle lower. They're the, they're the ones that are the red cards. One hundred percent. But if if the Connacht game had been a one leg and Gibson Park gets sent off. Who knows what happens? You know, it's not beyond the bounds of possibility that uh, that game gets gets changed. Now you'd still expect Leinster to come through, but I can see how against Leicester, if there's a red card for Leinster in the first ten minutes, you know, it's not going to be uh, it's not going to be an easy win for them at all. I, I do want to just one last question because I haven't talked to you in a while about um, the Munster backroom team. Uh, I totally understand Leamy, who everybody raves about when you talk to them about the impact that he's had at Leinster very young in his coaching career so it's a big promotion but it's good to get that DNA back into the club and I understand that that's of, of some importance but it's not the, the only thing Prendergast's coaching CV if if they get him is very impressive so it seems like what they're doing is they're finding the best person that they can get who has a link and who understands what the requirements are and then they're also getting somebody who has a very high ceiling that's a good start to the if First off, do you know anything about this? Do you think they're the right guys? And do they need to do something else as well? Is there is there room for some other people to join that backroom team, or are you happy with the direction that's trending? Um, I would I be happy with the two of those guys? I'd be delighted with them because um, I do think we need to try and uh, promote not necessarily from within, but people who've gone off to try and learn their trade elsewhere, and, and you know they will have an emotional attachment to it. I think it's a, it's. Um, but I think they're only part of the story. So um, it, it it depends exactly who else Roundtree is going to have and bring in and and partly whose decision that is. Um, so I think you'd like to have a, for me, I'd like to have a senior, um, another senior coach of, uh, look, I've said this time again, you, I, I love the manner in which um New Zealand backs play, and if there are look, there was talks about Robertson for 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 a huge amount of time, and I always thought that that was unlikely, but I thought that would have been 
um, a, a, an unbelievable scalp to get, but you need to have a fairly big team. I think we've started getting there, but there's there's one or two more needed. And uh, and for me, it's it's to do with skill level and ambition and how that's how that's gone about it. And um, uh, look, I'm you know I'm 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 critical of the manner in which. Uh, Munster have been playing under that South African way only for the reason I don't think it suits us necessarily I yeah. think it puts too much pressure we, we, we don't have huge men and people can say Ahern is big well he's tall and um, uh, he'll, he'll fill out more over time but they're not these huge you know giants of men and I think that that's a very difficult um, to, to play with that unless you have a steady stream of them sitting on the bench as well we may get one or two in a, in a blue moon so, look, I think it has to be more um, um, natural skills-based and we need to heighten the sense of skill that happens all the time. So, for me, I'd be looking for for a New Zealand coach um, and I think that that's the right mix, someone senior, um, um, because it's about trying to build something that will last for a long period of time. And, I, I look, for me... The, the 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 best um the best appointment has been uh Ian Costello um in terms of the academy and with the vision that he has and he went away and he spent a fair bit of time in wasps and um and he's come back and he has come back with with ideas of what he wants to do for the future of the game in Munster and for the players that are coming through the system. And, you know, for too long, I think Munster have bemoaned the, the, how great Leinster system is. Yeah. And now that they're trying to do something about it, like a Munster solution, maybe to a Munster problem. So it isn't exact. It can't be exact. And you can't be complaining about it. You just need to start doing things about it. And I think we're beginning to see evidence of that. Right. Um, not necessarily in the team that's been picked at the moment. That's the, that's the wrong, the wrong idea. Um, but in the, um, in a lot of the structures that are happening behind the scenes now, it's 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 a lot of changes to how the players are going to be developed. Okay, we've got to leave it there for now. Keith, good stuff. Thanks a million. Cheers, lads. It's, uh, Keith Wood giving his thoughts on the weekend's rugby, the Munster game live on Off the Ball and News Talk, especially extended Saturday programme for you. And we'll have Brian O'Driscoll's thoughts and we'll focus a little bit more on the Leinster game with Brian on Friday nights Off the Ball as well. At 8.43 this morning, though, Ronan Mullen is with us, uh, jet-lagged and... Um, I hope you brought some of the nice little chocolates back from, from America. I don't like American chocolate. I don't know what I'm talking about. Ronan, how are you? All good, Jer. All ha- good. How was it? Yeah, I didn't really need the, the plane home. I probably could have sailed home on the um, adrenaline of Saturday night. It was unbelievable. And like we would have spoke in the preceding days and the hype around it. Like, it's ironic. I think there was a tweet put up uh, marking the anniversary of Mayweather versus Pacquiao, which obviously had this crazy build-up and the fight was quite dull in the end, whereas somehow the... Taylor Serrano fight superseded that which went before. It was just an incredible spectacle in the ring, out of the ring, and what it's done for boxing at large, I don't think can be overstated. It was just a, a huge moment. So, uh, in Madison Square Garden, when does the evening begin to take on that kind of sense of this is something unique and special and, and uh, weirdly, as you said, actually beyond what we thought it could be? Yeah, well, like there's a slightly different culture in America in terms of ticket sales. So in this part of the world, if something's going to sell out, it would have so, it would have sold out well in advance. Whereas even with the Canelo fight this weekend, and he's probably the biggest star in boxing, there's a bit of a walk up element to it where it's going to sell out, but people leave it till the last minute. So we were told sort of midweek that it's tracking towards a sellout. 
And, you know, you have to take that with a pinch of salt because that it's in the promoter's best interest to, to make that suggestion. But ultimately, you just saw the crowd building on the night and there was a huge Puerto Rican contingent, huge Irish contingent, and then the number rolled in. It was in excess of 19,000. And you're just thinking, sometimes you're desensitised to the Katie Taylor phenomenon because it is that. It's a phenomenon and what she's done, you know, in boxing on a worldwide scale and, like, on a secondary level to Irish boxing principally. But then you're walking around Times Square in the lead-up to the fight and you see, like, her fight poster emblazoned up there and then it's like I was at a Katie Taylor fight in Madison Square Garden before but she was supporting Anthony Joshua and you know it was a slightly different dynamic whereas this was all on the strength of this phenomenal fight and it wasn't it's not the kind of I don't think it's an event that would have sold out if it was any sort of fight this was like a top tier event um, from an athletic point of view and you've got two of the top three fighters in the world going head to head and you just so rarely get that in any in any sport really so all that flux and th- those mesh of factors served up this unbelievable intrigue before the first bell and then from the first bell it just took on a life of its own and i think it'll be remembered like boxing news magazine which has been around forever have uh, released the front cover of their issue for this week and fight of the century is the tagline on the front cover so that speaks to how highly the, the kind of esteem this fight's been held in already. Well, the great fights need that jeopardy where you don't know what's going to happen or where you think you know what is happening and then it gets overturned by an incredible comeback. And that's, I think, why this is catapulted into the mainstream beyond the boxing fans and people are going back and looking at it and going, oh yeah, okay, she she was beaten. That, that like She was over. This was This was it. It was done. And that's the bit that I think sucks people in, right? Yeah, and like that uncertainty of outcome has been absent in Katie Taylor's career, essentially. Like there was a little bit, uh, naturally just the the gravity of the event for that London 2012 final. And it was obviously a very competitive bout in the end, but like there was a little bit of doubt around that. And then like in her entire professional career, like the comparable event was when she fought for the undisputed title against Delphine Pursun the first time. And she was a seven to one on favourite. So like that was it was a huge occasion, but she was like walking in there expected to win. Whereas she went in here as a, a betting underdog against like a serial world champion and an absolute superstar in Amanda Serrano, who you know was finally fake it till you make it is too harsh in Amanda Serrano because she's a seven-time world champion, but she always carried herself with this air of like confidence and had formerly been with Lou DiBella, like latterly now with Jake Paul and. You know, she turned down the Katie Taylor fight a couple of times because she said she wasn't getting the money she deserved. And, you know, boxing it, at a professional level is a commercial business, so the likes of Eddie Hearn have to leverage it up. They can only pay what if they're going to make some, you know, incomings on their end. But she like, kind of saw what was possible here and, like, doubled or tripled her money, money ultimately. So, like, you had that side of the dynamic where... Katie Taylor had this ideal dance partner from a commercial sense, but also in a boxing sense because Amanda Serrano brought the very best out of Katie Taylor and like, she really she left it all in there as well. I think the round five she saw this was her signature moment, her chance to, to seize it and you know possibly gave Katie Taylor her best shot and, and Taylor withstood it and I think that was the psychological blow as much as anything which uh, steered it in Taylor's favour ultimately. Did, did Amanda Serrano get swept away and the importance of the event more than Katie Taylor, I wonder. Like, just in terms of like what she was saying, right? She was the one speaking right before the first bell went. Mm. Now, in fairness, everybody probably gets more swept away in the magnitude of the event in the moment than Katie Taylor, given how 
composed she is. But I, I wonder, was that a factor? Yeah, like we, we've spoken about Katie Taylor, the, the fanfare which tends to greet her events and the Natasha Jonas fight at London 2012, which broke the decibel record at, at those games and, you know, the final and, and all those events that I've mentioned, you know, she's used to it. Whereas Serrano has like fought in, in club shows. She's defended her world title for $1,500. You know, this was an absolute sea change from her perspective. And probably it's, it's important to note that the Puerto Rican, like when, when they were arriving, the grand arrivals on the night and their, their images were being displayed on the big screen, there was a huge, huge turnout from the Puerto Rican fraternity. So Serrano probably felt a sense of pride in that regard and def- definitely tapped into it because I don't think she could perform any better. There, like if there is a rematch, there'll be little like, tweaks, but I think she, she performed to her optimum level, but Taylor was just that little bit better in the end. So what do you do if you're managing Katie Taylor now? Do you get the rematch as fast as possible? We were having this debate yesterday in the show. Um, I mean, do you try and get a tomato can for Croke Park and cash in or what do you do? This is it. Like it was, um, it was quite striking that the press conference after the event was delayed as compared to most because it was such a an attritional and damaging fight for both fighters. You know, and uh, like that has to be taken into play. It's not like in terms of a turnaround. Like if they were thinking of going in August, for example, they'd need to be starting training camp almost next month. I just don't think that's feasible. So that's when, when the October date was mooted yesterday. I think that's a lot more realistic for a Crow Park rematch. Like if you look at it from a Katie Taylor point of view, she could probably box me at Crow Park and, and sell it out. So she doesn't need this marquee matchup for that homecoming. It will just do amazing numbers regardless. From a Serrano point of view, like she's still the featherweight champion. She obviously jumped up two weight classes to fight Taylor and she wants to become the first undisputed featherweight champion from Puerto Rico and she'll have to go back down to featherweight to do that. So, like, if I was, from a Serrano point of view, I could see it's quite important for her to win her next fight, I think, to capitalise on this momentum. She doesn't want to be seen as a tandem with Katie Taylor. I think Serrano's built up enough credibility in the last couple of weeks where she could go and headline a show or just be chief support to that Jake Paul bill, which will obviously do massive numbers in August. So from both points of view, I can see why they'd want to go separate paths and then possibly reunite in a year's time. But similarly, I think there's a sense you could probably just build on the momentum of what was one of the greatest fights of all time. And you know, some, of the, some of those marquee matchups have like sequels and, and trilogies and you know, the Gaddy Ward comparisons where were quickly followed after the event, given the, the the pattern of the fight. But similarly, the the kinship that those two built after that first fight, and you know, it was parlayed into the the second and third. I think that could very easily happen with these two. So, um, the fact that the money is where it's at as well, I think, is a great thing. That's now a base level for these two, and there's no reason for them to dip below that. So, you'd like to think they're going to be the the tide that raises all boats in the women's boxing game as well. How much did they make from the fight? So Taylor made around $2 million and Serrano was in the seven figures as well. So like compared to the number I was mentioning earlier for Serrano, it's just, it's a whole different ball game. And this is, that's totally betting on herself. Like she, um, like many a person would have taken that fight in, in Eddie Hearn's back garden two years ago behind closed doors. And, you know, you're relying on pay-per-view money. There's obviously no gate there. And Taylor was the A side in that fight, whereas she saw the value in it and, you know, it's paid off in a big way. Yeah, fair play. You think that even without Amanda Serrano, Katie Taylor could come close to filling Pro Park? 
I th- yeah, I was th- chatting a few people about this. I don't think there's any question. I think she'd, uh, she'd probably sell out Croke Park back-to-back nights, Ed Sheeran style, if she if she wanted to, because like it's just such a marquee occasion. and It's, it's a big number of tickets. When you consider like they sold 19,000 at uh, Madison Square Garden, 19,000 in Croker would be an amazing achievement, but it's not going to look full. I think she'd, she'd pack it out. Uh, like, you think 80,000, 90,000? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you think of... Um, like I covered some of the Anthony Joshua fights at at Wembley Stadium, and you know it's not necessarily a boxing crowd at those events. And I would say a large proportion of those that attend fights at Madison Square Garden would be you know the boxing, boxing at large, and then a small amount of you know the Irish American contingent and and so on. Whereas I think you just have a huge like pop culture tap in with the with a Katie Taylor fight here, and it would just. I think it'd be a natural fit, um, and like there was so much talk ahead of this that were they being too ambitious, taking Taylor Serrano to the big room in Madison Square Garden? It's the first female bout of any hue to to headline an event there, and they sold it out in the first go. So I think they have to be similarly ambitious. It, it possibly would be easier to just go to the Three Arena or to a, a smaller venue than Crow Park for for the Taylor Homecoming. But I think with the the power of Matchroom and Eddie Hearn and some of the I don't think three is going to work anymore as well. When it was the point, it was differently configured. Mm. So um, I'm not sure. You I mean, the three sides or something, is it? Yeah, it's not quite the same. Well, it, it certainly wouldn't be the amazing in the round that you could have a, a croaker. Like there's probably there are probably other outdoor venues where you could you know build. So, yeah, maybe the infrastructure for it and you know. parallel grounds. Exactly, but no, I just I just think it's an absolute shoe in that. Like the the reaction off the back of the fight at the weekend, it is phenomenal. So massive, it is a cultural phenomenon. And the the only other side to this is that Katie Taylor has climbed every single mountain there is, and she has her health, mm. and it's boxing, and every single concussive punch from this point forward is is damaging. So, is there a possibility she just walks away at this stage and says, "Okay, I've done it all." I think there's an argument to be made for that. I don't think she's the one making the argument. I think if if you were suge- to suggest that to her, she'd uh, be aggrieved by it. But I think there's a there's a huge amount of logic to it because that was a hugely damaging fight, and I mean that in in a practical sense, where she's taking clean headshots in, in that fifth round, and you know Serrano's pro- like actually without question the biggest puncher she would have been in with amateur or pro, I would say. So. You know, like if we, if we are talking about a sequel and a third fight with those, you know, it's going to be a similar pattern of fights. So, um, the the commercial benefits of of continuing are possibly too big, and the com- the competitive spirit in her, like she's still she's shown that she's still the top dog and, and number one. So it's difficult to walk away in that regard. And any time the retirement issue has been broached, she's kind of fobbed it off and said I have a few few more years in me yet so Tom Brady style I think it's a it's a sort of kick the can down the road and and hope she's going to be stopped asking that question Okay so as a betting man would you say her next fight will be in Ireland? I think the practicalities of it are still it's so fresh from like a month removed from there's just never going to be another professional boxing event in Ireland was the sense to you know obviously what's happened in the interim and this like the fact that Eddie Hearn was volunteering that suggestion in the ring after the fight and it was all Jake Paul and Amanda Serrano herself were talking about let's go to Dublin, let's go to Dublin. Right. So like, I think that's a possibility. I think the more likely thing is if they could rematch at Madison Square Garden 
and then Katie Taylor, as we were suggesting, could have a homecoming against a different opponent in a year's time. Yeah, and that, it, that uh, might be more... You benefit. know, it's, it's, it's 50-50 if she beats Serrano in Dublin. What a letdown. It's 80,000 people in Croke Park streaming out after a defeat. It was like, oh man. That well, was, yeah. But the other, other side of that, though, is that it's, it's much higher than 50-50 in terms of packing it out and making this one of the, the best sporting events to ever happen on Irish soil if Serrano is the opponent. Yeah, it's true. That's true. Like, okay. any doubt around packing out Croke Park would be dispelled by Serrano, Serrano because there would be a travelling contingent from... You know, Everywhere. The American base. And yeah, I think there's a, a huge amount of people who um, would have wanted to be there on Saturday night, and it's going to be a lot more achievable if it's just up the road. All right. Good stuff, Ronan. Thanks very much for that. Cheers, lads. Thanks, Ronan Mullen, giving us his thoughts on a historic night for boxing in Madison Square Garden on Saturday, Sunday morning, our time. OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. John Duggan's up next. Here's Billy Walsh talking with Joe last night, saying that uh, Katie Taylor's hands are the fastest he's ever seen. You said something earlier which stuck in my mind, caught my ear. Did you say Taylor has the fastest hand speed, male or female, that you've come across? Yes, without doubt. Herself, and I can tell you, was not a really good... Clarissa Shields is also is up there, but I think, I think without doubt, uh, Katie has, has, has the greatest hand speed I've seen. Right. Is that just uh, God-given? Well, I, you know, I think we're born with, with a lot of things, and <laughs> you know, she was born with that. I think, and obviously there was there was nurture and uh, around it as well uh, throughout the years with her dad Pete Trainer, and then obviously in the high performance unit. And but yeah, in, in general, you know, that her speed is uh, is what what she was born with, and uh, was a gift. It's uh, Billy Walsh last night speaking with Joe Malloy on the show. I suspect the lads would want to have Billy back on tonight because there's big breaking news in Irish boxing this morning. John Duggan is with us. John, good morning to you. Yeah, good, Ger and Owen, yourselves. Yeah, good. We should be talking about the football and uh, what's going on there. But unfortunately, Irish boxing is on the back pages of the Irish Independent. Vincent Hogan has an exclusive this morning about Bernard Dunn. Yeah, so he's resigned. Uh, his position as High Performance Director of the Irish Athletic Boxing Association. Uh it follows an apparent row that he's had with the body since the Tokyo Olympics. Um, the intricacies of these things are always pretty complex, but Billy Walsh did leave in 2016 to go to the USA, and I thought at the time he was a huge lost Irish boxing, and um, we didn't do too badly at Tokyo, and, and Bernard Dunn has now quit as well. So um, there doesn't seem to be any kind of shortage of infighting in Irish boxing. Whoever's the um, culpable partner uh, in that uh, environment. It's it's never seems to be a completely smooth environment. Yeah, it's been consistent. Um, you know, people have come through the system, excelled, been in the background for our greatest ever Olympics, our you know our second uh, Olympic gold medalist in a decade, and um, they can't the the IABA can't seem to keep the good people in the system. So the one thing that's consistent throughout this is the IABA at the at the core of not being able to keep the good people in the system is the IABA. And I'd like to speak to the IABA about that and, and ask them that question. And um, I never understood the Billy Walsh situation at the time. I remember Sport Ireland uh, and their guys were looking to underwrite a salary and whatever the um, personalities or whatever the reasons were um, he was able to be let through the, the fingers of Irish boxing and go to do a great job with the USA and Billy Walsh is, was, has been our most successful um, person involved in Irish boxing coaching. I remember at the time I was so annoyed by it at the time that I called the whole thing a leprechaunism 
So I, I don't know if this is another case of that, but um, at the time I was pretty angry about it. So I'm looking forward to hearing from the IABA and from Bernard Dunn in, 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 the, in the coming days, hopefully, and, and we'll get to, to see what the, the sides of the stories are. This row has been brewing for like at least nearly a year at this stage. Um, an unsigned anonymous SWOT analysis was done of Bernard Dunn's position and was circulated to the board of the IABA. Uh, Bernard got his hands on a copy of it and um, wrote a letter complaining to the IABA and has essentially not been uh, able to do his job in the meantime. Um, Kelly Harrington was a pain to point out that she was missing his influence in the aftermath of coming back um, from the Olympic Games as a gold medalist. You know, he was obviously there for that, but uh, the uh, certainly for all the build-up to that as well. Um, but uh, has not been doing his job since because of this nonsensical stuff in the background where clearly he was very good at his job. Like his, his track record and his CV are second to none. He was involved with the Dublin footballers for ages. Jim Gavin, who obviously is a pretty good, true judge of characters and talent, uh, backed Bernard to be part of that backroom team and just listen to Paddy Andrews talk about him on the football pod. There's been um, certainly... Uh, you know, you, you got a sense of him being a good person to be around. The boxers all thought the same thing, it seems, and um, and backed him. And uh, uh, somebody who didn't put their name to it and didn't uh, feel comfortable going public with it um, in the background was circulating this document, which undermined him and undermined his position. And now he's gone. And it's like, all right, back goes the circle again. Um and well, you need people to look up to. Bernard Dunn is a world champion, so any young boxer getting involved in Irish boxing would look up to Bernard Dunn. They'd listen to him. They'd know he's uh, walked the walk and talked the talk. So, and that's what Billy Walsh was went to Seoul. Was a huge motivator and a like a, a winning coach for with Katie Taylor and all, obviously all the lads in Beijing in two thousand and eight. So, letting these people through the system is the last thing you should be doing. Um, that's the thing. Surely you can get to a, a, a position where somebody doesn't have to resign, as has, has been revealed this morning. Uh, Sport Ireland were conducting a, an independent review of their government, so I'm not sure if that was actually published in the end, but certainly uh, Sport Ireland are going to have to stand in here again, constantly talking to uh, AIBA about their governance and how they run, run things. And, uh, you know, I mean, maybe maybe if boxing comes out of the Olympics, we'll stop caring about this. But it seems to be a very important sport. Our, from, it's our most important from an sport, Irish perspective. It's our, our most medal sports, yeah. and um, you know, you see how important Katie Taylor has been and Kelly Harrington have been for Irish sports. And uh, as I mean, your leprechaunism is a, a good term. So uh, let's move on. What else are we talk about? Well, like last night, I'm sure you've spoken quite a lot about it. There's four quarters in a two-legged match. Villarreal played for one quarter. And Liverpool um, then were able to uh, benefit the fact that they couldn't sustain it in the second half of that semi-final second leg at the Madrigal last night. So it was a 3-2 win on the night then and a 5-2 win overall for Liverpool. The quadruple is on Paris, May 28th. How much would you spend Liverpool fans to go to the Champions League final? They were selling the tickets for ten grand outside the uh, Wanda Metropolitano in 2019 for the Liverpool Spurs game. And Andy Robertson is thrilled. It's so hard to get to Champions League finals, especially the amount of good teams that are in this competition. And, um, it's, you know, to get to the finals is an incredible feeling. Um, it's going to be a special occasion. We're looking forward to it. We've got a lot of games from now to then, but our season's been extended, but for the right reasons. And we're so happy about it. And, you know, we can't wait to try and go and compete and, you know, try and make it number seven. Good fella, isn't he? Andy Robertson. Mm. In what way? Just seems like a good fella. Yeah. You go for a beer with him. You go for a beer and Andy Robertson. You go for a pint of tenants. 
It'll be a long night. I get the impression that... Uh, what, with me or just with him? <laughs> no, it'll be more than one. Um, Stephen, Diaz, Stephen says, Diaz has to play in the final. Jota just isn't in great form. Uh, Thomas O'Connell makes the point. Newcastle busted a gut for 90 minutes on Saturday and put it up to Liverpool. And Villarreal did it for 45 and scared the bejesus out of them. It shows you if teams just put in the same effort, they can give them a game. Uh, City destroyed Liverpool in the league. City should have won 10-2. Far better team, City. Sorry, I incorrectly read that. City destroyed loser pool in the league, uh, says Jay. Mm. Uh, Barry Manley says, great win last night, but to be honest, Rudy is a terrible goalkeeper. We were glad to get rid of him here in Real Sociedad, and he was a fall for at least two goals last night. It's true. Do Liverpool think Madrid is an easier task? It's a final. Anything can happen. Now, they don't think it's an easier task, but they want revenge. That's the whole point of that. Um, Thiago and Diaz are overrated by the media, says S99BFO. C8 snappy good players but not consistently great yet we need more commenters like Jay we don't have enough people calling them loser pool we don't have people in our comments calling Ronaldo Penaldo and like saying cry more and stuff in our YouTube comments it's not young enough I don't think so welcome Jay Uh, thanks for your comment top five sporting fellas to go for a beer with Mm. (laughs) Uh, something to think about uh I'd say Shane Lowry. The classic. Ron Nogara. Yeah. I'd say Roy Keane. If he's on the booze. <laughs> if he's on the booze, Roy Keane. Definitely. That'd be a good night. You'd end up with a fight at four o'clock in the morning. But that's good. That's, that's what you want. You'd great content for the next morning it lets, show. It lets a bit of pressure out. He's like, uh, what? I mean, you've never spoken to Peter Schmeichel ever since. <laughs> he did name Pallister and his team of the the Premier League, though, and they had a big fight. Like, um, he seems to think having a fight with somebody is a good thing. So that's three. Uh, okay, 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 okay. Is Robertson in that five? Uh, did you say Irish? No, any any person. Oh, is it anybody? Yeah. Oh, well then, it's like Pirlo and Zidane. And then uh, a far more interesting list: top five sports people you have been for a pint with. Um, okay, no, that, that's no, that's way more interesting. This is what people want to hear. That's like real wankery. That's like, oh no, I mean, like me, people who almost you almost got into fights with, or were outrageous, or any of that sort of stuff. That's not risky territory at all. Um, well, Sean Cronin once mistook me for Adrian Barry and was very angry about something that I had said about him. Well, actually, Adrian Barry was the was the guilty party in that one. Um. Who, who who are yours? It's all the it's all the Kerry footballers. Have you been out there on those nights when no good stuff has happened? Uh, oh yeah, there was there was one night a few. That, I, I'm very much waiting for the football pod to tell the story of what happened one of the nights in what is it about five years ago at this point in Coppers. Yes, were you yes. there? I was there. I, so I, you were an eyewitness. I, I witnessed something extraordinary. Right. Um, I I like we Mayo versus Dublin. No, it was Kerry versus Dublin. Oh, were there not some Mayo lads knocking there around? There were some Mayo lads knocking around. All right, so it was like a Royal Rumble, three three on three. People at home would be like, ha ha ha, that's hilarious, but I wasn't a million miles away from... Uh, Why don't from you just tell the story and get the views for yourself? Absolutely not, because that, be li- that, that would be hugely libelous to everybody who's involved, because the story only is, is good if you actually name the... the, the but it's not libelous if it's true. Literally, well... Oh, we, we, no, anyway. It's <laughs> not going The burden of proof lies... Ronnie O'Sullivan says somebody else Aina Carroll yeah I don't know I'd go for a beer with Ronnie Oof, really? that's a big snub yeah I don't know just shows up and John is like alright see you later 
Petra's point walks home after Ronnie sidles up beside him at the bar. Ronnie probably got you, Ronnie. You know, I don't really like you or whatever. You know, so. What's he ever done to you? At least you'd know, though. You know, yeah, there would be no Italia. fake bonhomie with him. Italia, it's like, yeah, Italia. yeah, I'm having a good time or I'm not. I'm not having yeah. a good time. Yeah, and that's probably the risk I would want to take. To uh, I mean, is that not good? I, 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 want to be, I, I want to be leaving with any sports star feeling like, well, they really enjoyed my company because I'm, like, you know, <laughs> just this randomer. Um, Who's on your list, John? I, I, I need to think about it. Um, yeah, you like the way you just pitched it on me and you're like, nah, I've got nothing. Um, well, that's because your producer said it in my ear. Uh, so uh, Dalo would be somebody I'd, you know you know is always would be good to go for a pint with I think. yeah um, again that runs the risk of being a multi-day we end up at Cheltenham even <laughs> yeah. though there's no festival on <laughs> oh classic um, I think there's different types of this like there's like people that you know you who? Cluxton no uh, there's people you'd know you'd have a good drink with and there's people then you'd want to pick their brain like Jim Gavin you know you'd have a the steak with or whatever and then pick his brain it'd be, it'd be more different kind of a night you know um, who's on your list Owen I'd also need to kind of think about this like I mean you've taken all the obvious ones to be honest you were in school well, you were years ahead of Clifford though so you were never out I have, so I have I have interest in sporting people that aren't just carry footballers you know you don't like, I mean, well, who you've actually been out with though oh no I, I haven't been out with any uh, sports people of note absolutely not It'd be unprofessional, wouldn't it? After roadshows? No, it's just after roadshows. Sometimes if you work with them, you know, you can have a drink once a year or whatever. That's, Norman Whiteside that's does a thing where he explains his 1985 FA Cup final goal with uh, the salt cellar and pints. Brilliant. He does it very well as well. It's very practised. Have you seen it? Yeah. All right. He was at a roadshow. Okay, fair enough. That was a late night. Yeah. Laura was out that night, actually. That was good crack. Yeah? Yeah. What, what does Laura drink? Oh, good question. Beers. I'd, I'd, I'd want to say Carlsberg but I could be wrong we could have just asked him earlier on I wonder what he thinks of you on a night out well I'd say like he's like um, Ronnie Sullivan got that guy pothole <laughs> go on very good chance anything else uh, yeah so City uh, 4-3 lead over Real tonight 8 o'clock in the Bernabeu Kevin De Bruyne uh, says City will be viewed differently if they go all the way in Europe this season it would change the perspective from outside I don't think um Obviously, as a player, you you want to win the trophies and you want to win this one. But I think the the fact that we've been fighting for it numerous years and being to the the latter stages means that we've been doing really well. Obviously, it's a cup competition and the, the quality is very high, so it's very very difficult to win it. And there's different circumstances that, that happen. But you know, I think in the end, if you look back at the way we we performed or I performed with the team for seven years, we did really well. But obviously we, we didn't win it and I think win it would just change that little narrative. Can't wait for this tonight, lads, uh, in the Champions League semi-final second leg in Spain. Uh, Mark Travers will be playing in the Premier League next season with Bournemouth. They qualified automatically a 1-0 win over Nottingham Forest last night. So it's Forest, it's Luton, it's Huddersfield and Sheffield United at the moment occupying the four playoff spots with one round of fixtures to go. Clare beating Cork uh, by 217 to 117 in the Munster Minor Hurling Championship last night. They'll play Tipperary in the final now. It's Limerick against Tip tonight in the Munster under 20 hurling final at the Gaelic Grounds from half seven. Longford Wicklow and Offaly Leash in the Leinster Minor Football Championship from seven this evening, guys. And Goran Park stages an eight race card on the flash from 4.50. Shifty Lad says Taylor should be Aviva or RDS. Croke Park is too big and the atmosphere will be lost because of its size. Wembley for Joshua is a soccer pitch size, not GAA pitch. Interesting perspective. I do, you know, uh, uh, would 50,000 be enough? It might. 50,000 might be like 
unbelievable. Like we we're so um Tyson Fury and Anthony Joshua were the world heavyweight champions in England, which has a population twenty times our population, and they were able to sell that out after like massive hype campaigns. Would we be able to sell eighty thousand for Katie Taylor? I don't I think we shouldn't just shoo it in. I don't I think it's I think it's more difficult than we think to sell tickets, particularly because the pricing it's not going to be priced to bring your three kids. It's going to be priced for like, would it be a hundred quid minimum? Well, I'm not sure about minimum. Hundred and twenty. What's the cheapest ticket? I, I'd say you, I, they would surely price where there would be sixty to seventy as your cheapest ticket. Sure, like it'd be a nosebleed, obviously. But yeah, um, yeah like it's, you're more than doubling it if you go for fifty from for, from what her, her previous record would have been. I do think that Serrano would be quite an essential part of it if you're going straight to Croke Park because for me the, the aftermath of this thing is it has just taken on a whole new lease of life compared to the build up and the, the reason why the aftermath has just been crazy is because of the quality of the fight itself things like fight of the century is, is the thing that would promote this next fight yeah. and all if right. you lose one half of that all right. Any thoughts on that John? The homecoming, I, like what all these things, it's all about the, the purse isn't it and you know you've got to fulfil the purse you've got to fulfil the money and um it's balancing that with the fact that it is a homecoming. It is a professional bet in, in, in Dublin. And where does Katie want to? Where does where does she want to fight? I think it's probably the thing. Yeah, well. I mean, you know, she's a soccer player. Maybe the Aviva is something that she'd always dreamed of. Yeah. Uh, but Croke Park, Park is, is, is Croke Park more Irish and more soulful? Um, is is that a, a determination? But yeah, like an All Ireland final ticket's ninety euros. So maybe should that should be the ceiling of it? Yeah. All right. Coming up, Phil Egan's going to be in to talk football uh, during the ads. Keep an eye out for James O'Donoghue and Paddy Andrews getting excited about Derry's prospects this summer from the latest episode of the Football Pod. And, you know, if you would like to go for potentially a pint with the two lads, well, then uh, we're going to fix it for you. Uh, The Football Pod with Paddy Andrews and James O'Donoghue is hitting the road this summer. We want you to be there. No guarantee that they will meet you for pints afterwards, but, you know, play your cards right. Don't be a pothole. First stop is the Royal Theatre in Castlebar on Thursday, the 2nd of June, where Paddy, James and Tommy We'll dissect, analyse and celebrate Mayo football as well as Championship 2022 in the usual football pod style. Plus, you can expect a local legend or two to join the lads on stage. That's the football pod with Paddy and James in Castle Bar on the 2nd of June. Tickets are on sale now. Go to otbsports.com forward slash events to get yours today and stay tuned to OTB for details on more shows to come. OTB AM. Right, if you want good quality sports audio in your earballs all day, just tell your smart speaker to play OTB Sports Radio. Here's what's coming up. Chris Waddle is OTB Gold at one o'clock. Rihanna Jarrett is today's guest on Koi Gig. That was really interesting stuff from her talking about her athletic identity. That's uh, all in association with Cabris. Our retro panel at four o'clock is Sport and the uh, Easter Rising. At six o'clock, OTB Gold is Paul McGrath and the lads are back tonight from seven with the show and as I said you can get it on OTB Sports Radio and the best place to get that is the OTB Sports app now Phil is in with us Phil uh, five for a pint this is um, uh, an off the cuff idea that um, our producer had who would you go like to go for a pint with in, in world sport mm-hmm. I think I think Jurgen Klopp would be well, up there Thomas Kane says Jurgen Klopp lads come on I've seen him dancing and drinking pints yeah so that's going to be go crack other Premier League managers I know he's no longer a Premier League manager, but I always think Sean Dyche would actually be go crack. There is the humour that you saw in some of his press conferences where he talked about playing lucky likeys in the pub. I mean, that could kill half an hour if you wanted to play that with Sean Dyche. Oh, insufferable, though, wouldn't it? Just stop. Half an hour. Get the, we, get the, we get the bit. Yeah. 
Half an hour, that's all I'm asking. Um, well, you're not really like, you say, we're offering you the whole world of sports stars, and you're like, I wouldn't mind killing in half an hour. Like, this could be the best night of your life. Yeah, I think, obviously, a boxer. The boxers always have the best stories, um, so there's a, there's a few in there that you, you could throw in there, past champions, present champions. Um, golfer, is there a golfer there? No. no. I don't think so. Uh, Shane Larry would be a, Oh, sorry, sorry, yeah, we Shane did say Larry Shane Larry, yeah, but yeah. Um, after that, I mean, somebody said Mickelson. Oh my God, no! Like, I mean, Mickelson. You'd spend the whole. Uh, fun, yeah. You'd be drinking a lot of champagne. Yeah, like you'd laugh. You'd, you'd laugh at him. Yeah. For the evening, like you'd let you'd let him regale people with with stories of uh, of Saudi Arabia being scary mfers. Uh, David Bosang says five for a pint. Nick Popperwell, Lawrence Delalio, Ian Poulter, Brian Robson, and Big Phil Mickelson. Brian Robson also came out for drinks after a roadshow. So yeah, he'd be good. Good inside scoop on that. Um, he was he had beers and it didn't seem to have any impact whatsoever he was it was like just an even keel uh, Thomas Kane as I said Jurgen Klopp Owen Whelan says Tommy Walsh Chaff it's Patrick Roy and Fergie yeah a hurler definitely a hurler as well the hurlers are good crack Henry Shefflin Brian Cody first two I'm thinking the awfully All-Ireland winning generation yeah we've been for points with them actually they are yeah. good crack definitely th- throw one of them in there as well yeah, uh, Owen Burke says it's all well and good saying teams should do what Villarreal did every week but they know they can't keep it up for 90 minutes just like Villarreal couldn't was that the fundamental flaw last night Phil or did they stop believing like I know uh, uh, both I, Nathan and Laura were like ah I wasn't that worried but there must have been a bit of worry well uh, okay my honest feeling at half time was it can't get any worse for Liverpool and I expected Henderson and Diaz to come on at halftime. Diaz came on, changed the game. In fairness to Naby Keita, we saw last season he didn't even make the halftime against Real Madrid. Bit of a surprise to see him come out for the second half, but he was very good in the second half. And Klopp probably said, you know what, you've enough credit in the bank. You scored the winner for us at the weekend. Keita's been playing some good stuff in recent weeks. So I think that'll stand to him, the fact that he actually put in a good second half performance. That's what Klopp wants to see. He wants to see when the chips are down and you've been here before and we took you off before, but this time I'm going to back you and he didn't let him down in the second half. Um, I think Villarreal just they ran out of steam. And I, I was surprised. Emery said after the first leg last week, this game is going to be different. He said it in the build-up as well in the pre-match press conference. Now, I did expect Villarreal to have more of a go. Now, I didn't expect them to just throw the kitchen sink at Liverpool in the first half. I thought they'd be more methodical where they would think, let's treat this as two halves. Let's try and win each half by a goal and then we have extra time. But they looked absolutely spent. You think of, if you're going 100 miles an hour, the worst thing you can do is stop because they're sitting in the changing room for 15 minutes. Cramping up. And the legs are starting to lose a bit of life. Then they see Diaz coming on. And all he did when he came on was... He just he got his foot in the ball and it created time for other players because in the first half they just couldn't get their foot in the ball. When they did, everything was rushed. Every misplaced pass just got the crowd up for it even more. And I can see what Klopp was trying to do in terms of protect Diogo Jota. Jota is a different type of player, obviously, to Diaz. And Liverpool have that with their their front five. Obviously, Firmino was there, but he wasn't available. But he, like Diaz, is that kind of player that can just put the foot in the ball and slow things down. 
and then that just gives a bit of calmness to your teammates and it also brings other players into play whereas everything was so rushed in the the first half I thought Jota was a little bit like that away to Newcastle in the first half at the weekend but he had a really good second half he could start against Spurs and score two goals because he's one of those he's he's a bit like a machine when it comes to, to scoring goals but they just didn't get opportunities to, to attack in the first half so no I, I think it was a case of Villarreal were gassed for the second half and Liverpool just stepped it up and they've had a few games this season where I thought if they get in at half time everything would be alright the two City games spring to mind it was nil all at Anfield at half time but City were on top and I just thought if Liverpool get in then they can fix the the problems they have and they actually led twice in the second half of that game then obviously you think of the game at the Etihad 2-1 down at half time City are pushing for that third goal and you think if they get it then it's game over Liverpool get in they come out score straight away in the second half so they're very good at readjusting and that's the problem with with trying to beat Liverpool you know you need them to have an off day for 90 minutes and it's rare that that happens I mean think back to the two league games they've lost this season the West Ham game and the Leicester game Leicester they missed a penalty in that game and they missed chances West Ham got ahead in that game and they were just dogged so if Villarreal had scored a third goal last night then you know the, the worry for Liverpool is Villarreal would have tried everything to slow the game down whether it was lads going down feigning injury you know taking time over set pieces so it's um, yeah it's just another um, characteristic of this Liverpool team that they're just they just don't know when they're beat another different way for them to win yeah that's they're just that's what they're doing at this time of the season they're just finding ways to win um, you know they obviously put on a a show against Manchester United then a few days later they, they grind it out against Everton you know they they were able to make changes against Newcastle at the weekend and then you know you'd expect you, like that's a tough game they have coming up now against Spurs at the weekend but you just kind of feel that they're going to find a way to get the, the three points um, Tell me how many trophies they will finish the season with So they've won I don't know I, I think Chelsea have a bit of a their style doesn't really suit Liverpool, so I don't think I don't think that's a foregone conclusion. No, because the Chelsea, Chelsea are in free fall is the only thing they are. But I think they've won kicking them. You know, they you, you kind of saw that the the away leg against Real Madrid that they could pull pull out a performance. And you know, Chelsea would be thinking that they should have beaten Liverpool in the League Cup final. And on another day, if Mason Mount puts a couple of those chances away, they could have the Premier League. I still think City are in the driving seat just because they don't look like dropping points. Um, I think if you ask me tomorrow morning, I'd have a more definitive answer on the the Champions League. I think Liverpool would rather play Real Madrid, I think, in the final. Just all Premier League clashes are not usually good finals. Um, You heard what Mo Salah said. I think think that the reason the Spurs game was so crap was because it was a month between... Yeah, that's true. I I think this is going to be totally different. Because the the games between City and Liverpool... I heard heard what Laro said. He doesn't think it's going to be good. But I think that uh, the games between City and Liverpool have been amazing. Yeah. Like, it is... It's at the level the Classico was at when it was Mourinho versus Guardiola where here's a team who everybody... Everybody except Mourinho managed to win a Champions League with... uh, versus the best team we've ever seen and the Stars made the fights and the Stars making the fights between these two as well yeah yeah no I, I think either way they're going to be 
it's going to be a good final, just given the way Liverpool play. Um, you know, if if it's Liverpool against Real Madrid, obviously there's the the 2018 narrative um, last season to a lesser extent, and then if it's Liverpool Man City, it's the all Premier League clash. It's the you, obviously the two of them going toe to toe in the Premier League, where you could have this strange situation where City could have wrapped up the Premier League title going into a game trying to win a trophy they're desperate to win and Liverpool thinking we're going to avenge you taking the Premier League title off us which is the one that we wanted I think look Liverpool have obviously won the Champions League six times but they want to win the Premier League they want to win that more I think than the Champions League especially given how the title went a couple of seasons ago they obviously won it but they weren't there to lift the trophy with a crowd they want that so to answer your question, I'm, I'm I think settle for a Champions League. <laughs> no, absolutely, absolutely. I think three trophies, but not the league. Um, yeah, I think that'd be an unbelievable season. I think the fact that they're challenging for all of them is just um, this is what Liverpool fans are, dream of. Where when Klopp took over, you know, this has exceeded expectation. It was all about can he deliver a Premier League title? He's done that, but three Champions League finals in five seasons is phenomenal and. You know, there's a there's a fair chance they could have a, a second Champions League title by the end of the month. Glenn Boylan says it's crazy to think that Alison Header last season to help us qualify for the Champions mm. League. Here we are now in another final. Yeah, that did that goal against West Brom because there was, there was a game where they obviously dropped points against Newcastle and Anfield, and everyone kind of felt that was it, done and dusted. But yeah, to score a header against Big Sam, who's meant to be the expert on defending set pieces, and Alison went up and scored it. And it, it was spoken about a few people I saw mention it last night. Where um, without that goal, there would be no Champions League campaign. So it's uh, fine margins, and um, yeah, I think just the next few weeks is going to be um, nervous but exciting for Liverpool fans because you know. You, you want to be in it. If you're not in it, you can't win it. Mo Salah's interview on BT last night I thought was was uh, very forthright and something that you're not really used to seeing. Specifically, which part of it? Because Nathan was talking about the same thing. Yeah, just the goals, the targets that he sets. He actually said, usually I don't say this, but I'm going to tell you now, the 40 goals. Um, and then obviously he had no qualms in saying, yeah, I want to play Real Madrid. The 40 goals, not getting the 40 goals, does that make Liverpool go, oh, you didn't hit your own target, so we're not going to pay you the 400 grand. <laughs> uh, you mean, you, you told us, we didn't know what your targets were, but uh, you're actually, you're not hitting your KPIs, so we're going to cut your salary. Yeah, I, I think uh, the fact that he's aiming for 40 goals just shows the level he's at. And, um, you know, he, it was interesting, actually, Arsene Wenger was on B in Sports last night just talking about Mane and Salah. Just like, the workload that they've had to get through the last few months. Obviously, both got to the final of Afcon, uh, a final that went to penalties. You know, and Egypt had been in extra time a few times. Then they obviously met in that um, World Cup playoff as well. So think of say Salah. It's probably more evident in Salah where, like, the emotional and physical drain that must have where. He obviously loves playing for his country. Like Egypt are dour to watch, but you know, that that's not Salah's fault. Like he he's obviously trying to get them to World Cups and win Afcons. But I wonder what kind of toll that's taken on him mentally. Where 
you know, he's not going to be going to the World Cup. He missed out on winning the AFCON. But I mean, the fact he's not going to the World Cup means he's a great signing for anybody in the summer as well. So his market value is never going to be higher than it is this summer if Liverpool decide that they're not going to pay him the 400 grand a week he wants. Yeah, I, I'd be surprised if Salah left in the summer. I think a bit like what the reports coming out of Germany are like with Lewandowski. There might be no new deal, but they're just leaving it free the following summer. That, that could happen and people say that's madness to, to let that happen with Salah but if Liverpool think Salah is maybe they, they they see how next season goes and they keep offering him a new deal and if he has an unbelievable season next season as well they could say yeah we'll um, we'll up the money but I think one thing we've learned in the last few years that if Salah was to go Liverpool are, they'll be able to cope without him they'll just the recruitment is that good I mean, Diaz wasn't even meant to be signed in January. This was something that kind of came through yeah. last minute and just what a sign he's been. Like, I guess the other thing is if he was to leave this summer, there would be a phenomenal amount of money coming in that they could then reinvest if they wanted to or they don't have to reinvest immediately. They can wait a while and reinvest next Christmas and um, and see what they need. Yeah, I don't know. I think he's the one player that if he was to go, they'd have to replace him straight away because he's left-footed, because of that inverted winger that creates that space for Trent Alexander-Arnold. So, but I would be, I would imagine Liverpool have a host of players okay. lined up as replacements if it came to that. I don't think it will, though. Have you changed your mind about relegation? Are Leeds going down now? I'm very worried about Leeds now. Yeah, I think there's going to be twists and turns. Burnley, everyone just thinks because they're after taking 10 points from the last 12 games or 12... That, the that's mighty them. Villa stand between Burnley and... Two games, yeah. Like it's going to be uh, very interesting. Even if they win one of those, then you know they're, they're in with a chance. But look, we saw Leeds were on an unbeaten run of five and then you know, they've they obviously got a, a hiding last weekend. But... Um, and Stuart Dallas is a big loss for them as well. Arsenal and Chelsea, the next two games, it's really what happens with the other teams around them. So if Leeds are in the bottom three going into those final two games against Brighton and Brentford, then, yeah, you would fear for them. But Everton have just kind of adapted a, a Jose Mourinho style where they're just making themselves really hard to beat, but it's bloody effective. And Jordan Pickford was the hero for them on Sunday. So... I, as I said to you, I always felt if Everton are going to get out of it, it's their home form, and that's the way it's playing out at the moment. I do think that if Lampard manages to save them from here, being adaptable is actually a good thing for his managerial career. I also think that like we probably underrated a little bit the job that he did when the transfer embargo was there, and he had no choice not to uh, he had no choice to sign players. That the group that he worked with and the young players that he brought through, he did very well with them. Like there's there's definitely a he's a bit smug, he's slightly overrated by the English media as a player, he's very overrated by the English media as a manager, but he's not as bad on the other side of that. We we might have gone a bit too far with criticism. Well we've a nice little collection possibly of former England midfielders in the Premier League next season with Scott Parker bringing Bournemouth up, so you could have Parker, Jared and Lampard all managing in the Premier League next season. But you fit him into one team? No. Nah. I don't know, like who who plays out in the left? Always the problem. It's always been an issue, but yeah, I, I don't know where I, I stand on if he keeps them up because some people would argue he shouldn't have them down this far. That when he took over, they yeah they they weren't bit of a shambles. Everybody injured. Yeah, like the encouraging thing is 
the, the way they've dug in the last few weeks. As I said, one thing that has been quite evident in the last few weeks, especially those games at Goodison Park, is the Everton fans realise how serious the situation is and they've got behind the team. Stay up and then you can air your grievances after. You can say, look, this has been an absolute shambles. How did how did we get to this where a few seasons ago they were talking about a new stadium and trying to play European football and yeah, trying well, to break? So you can do that after the season is over. It's now just a case of survive and deal with it after. Yeah, paying the wrong characters too much money. It's the yeah. same story at Arsenal. It's the same story at Manchester United. It's the same story at Everton. It, it's the same story in every football club that has gone off the rails. Bad recruitment and paying too much for players who don't deserve the money. Feel good stuff. Thanks very much for that. Uh, one last thing, sorry, Katie Taylor, where's she going to fight next? Um, I would still be leaning towards a rematch in New York. And you think that's the best thing for a career? Um, I think I think it would be a great way to go out for Katie Taylor to fight at Crow Park. But I would prefer if it was against Serrano. I would prefer if it was the... So fight the, Serrano and Croker if you're managing... If you're Brian Peters today, you get to play uh, boxing manager... Yeah. Um, what want, What do you want? You want? I want Serrano because you want Serrano where? where? I want Serrano in Crow Park. I, I'm not mad about October because I just know that it's, prob- it's not going to be a great night. Even if it's fine. if it's dry, it should be. It could be okay. Um, yeah. But look, I, I know it never the box, rains in Ireland. The box it actually is, never yeah. rains in Dublin. Like it's very very dry here. Yeah, I mean, apart That's from the bank holiday recently, weekend, just gone. <laughs> I mean, look, that's, your recency bias is is, uh, is giving you incorrect information. I mean, this is going to be the most boring topic of conversation ever on this show, which is saying something, but I have noticed it raining more often recently in Dublin than... The last in, couple of weeks, but... No, and, and then, say, compared to like seven, eight years ago. I do think that the last year has been particularly raining. And would you monitor this, or have you got stats to back It's up? almost as if, like, the entire... <laughs> Where's your evidence for that? ...global climate Where's is your evidence uh, for that? shifting that's and just more my extreme opinion. weathers. Where's your evidence for that? Is this it, like your no, past completion chart? Here yeah. Out, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there are. It's not like they don't keep stats for this, Owen. Yeah, but I just said in my, in, I feel it in my waters. Is yeah, that what you're telling me? Literally, meteorologist. I, my waters never lie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> meteorologist Sheehan has finally unveiled his full. Ah, oh, look at me! All the time, I was secret, secretly. Twenty twenty two has been a rainy year. I can, I can just feel it. All right. Okay. Statistically, this is interesting. Mm. OTBM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs. That's why they pay us the big money for the meteorological. You come for the sports information and actually you end up getting half-baked opinions about the weather. Uh, uh, sorry, we are brought to you each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Uh, you can follow off the ball on all our social platforms. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the OTB Sports app to enjoy the latest and best in sports content and analysis. Uh, no mention of uh, Tyg Furlong, says Kian Fahey. Uh, Brian Cody, we go crack for points. Says Stephen Kevin McManaman for the ballads. Says somebody who just uh, claims to be Celtic in our um, uh, YouTube comments. Uh, it's interesting that the Celtic Football Club have, you know, time of the morning to be uh, commenting on our YouTube stream. But sure, look, myself and I'll back tomorrow. Aidan Fogarty is going to give us his thoughts on Handshake Gate. That's uh, Taggy Man City coach uh, Jamie Carr. We have the second episode of Have You Seen Joseph Conroy's sports documentary recommendation slot and much more besides. OTB AM With Gillette Get into your flow With the new Gillette Labs Razor With exfoliating bar